Josh, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing well. That was a delightful way to start. Uh, I think you caught it perfectly, though. Like, it, it, I don't think it actually came into the recording, but it was funny watching your face adjust mid-yawn. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, oh, we got time. Oh, no, oh, no, we don't, we don't. No. But, you know, today we are thrilled to finally be getting into the first of a few of these type of series we'll hopefully be doing. This has been talked about for a minute now. It's really been a scheduling thing on my end, but really happy to get into our, well, I guess, continuation of our GM retrospectives, except we spiced it up a little bit. Before we've done, I think we did one or two at least, looking back on yeah, an executive moves uh, they made. Um, Isaiah Thomas, and then I think we also did uh, There we Joe go, Dumars. Joe Dumars. Yeah. Yep. There we are. Yep. And so that was cool. Um, just kind of looking back on what we like, we didn't like kind of giving a beat by beat process transaction type of analysis on that executive moves, what trends we found, et cetera, et cetera. However, in this, we're going to be just a little bit different. We've put on our GM thinking caps in addition to our analysis. So we're going to look back on one famed NBA executive, talk about what went well, um, not much, what didn't go well a whole lot and why that was what it was and then we will attempt to reconstruct some of the decision making processes for this executive how we would do things differently what our thought process would be uh and hopefully how we would come up with a different roster we do have the benefit of of hindsight so that's always a thing there um but you know what it's still gonna be a fun exercise in retrospect especially since this executive was doing some moves that were off the beaten path even in real time so josh would you like to give some background information on the one the only the david khan Khan! (laughs) yes uh so david khan was hired by the timberwolves may 22nd of 2009 and then was in charge of basketball operations through May 3rd of 2013. It's not a long time, which would suggest, like Corbin said, that not a lot went right. Um, The weird thing is I've met this guy twice in person. Uh, Interesting vibes. Um, And yeah, a lot didn't go well for, for him. Uh, believe they missed the playoffs the entire time that he was in charge um and 
he he managed to alienate his star player at one point by kind of shortchanging uh, him in negotiations for a rookie scale extension. Um, also is very well known for taking two point guards back to back in the top six in the 2009 draft. And neither of those point guards were named Steph Curry. Um, and then he gets a lot of unfair flack in that draft as well, because technically the Timberwolves selected Ty Lawson with the 18th pick, another point guard and Nick Calathis, a fourth point guard with their second round pick, the, the 45, 45th pick. But that's one of those things that fans and media kind of get lost on. Uh, the Nuggets made the Ty Lawson pick. It's just Minnesota had to make that selection for them. Same with the Mavs taking Nicolathis with the 45th pick. Um, so there, there were some things that I think get overblown when it comes to Khan. Uh, but there are definitely some things that maybe don't get blown enough. <laughs> Uh, yeah, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> there you go. Like some things get made, made too much attention to, and there's other things that you could definitely give more attention to. Yes. Yeah. I think that makes an excellent point. Um, David Conn for me has always been one. I've of course never actually met the person, but one of my favorite written pieces I've ever did was looking back on all of David Conn's moves. Um, really enjoy that just because it was like, well, I actually found him an engaging personality from the sense of wow how can someone so self-assured and and confident to the point well of arrogance yeah. you know make the level of moves that he did that were so actively destructive you know uh questionable at best destructive at worst and yeah I, it was it was one of those things that was very interesting to me so i went back and when i wrote this piece it was like a 20 minute read if i remember right Fifteen minute read. I like was looking back on all of his interviews and everything he was thinking, and I literally went beat by beat on every move. And it was like, wow, like that is insane. Some of the moves he would make, whether that was like you said, the drafting back to back point guards, and not even two of the best. You know, one I'd say was average uh, in that ranking, and one unfortunately fell a little far behind. Huh? Yeah. So I, I just got to throw this out there early on. Johnny Flynn got screwed pretty bad in this whole endeavor. Um, Johnny Flynn, obviously he didn't pan out, but I don't think he necessarily was a bad player. I think a lot of things contributed to him not having a particularly strong career to start out with. Um, one, uh, he thrived as a pick and roll point guard in college. Mm -hmm. And he comes into a team, and this is the first major problem I think Khan had, is Khan hired Kurt Rambis to be his coach because he wanted somebody to play, to, to run the triangle offense with a primarily young team. And then he drafts a pick and roll point guard who first needs to adjust to being in the league and who is basically playing with the specter of his replacement who was drafted a pick before him coming up uh, to the team, like in the next season or two. So he's already got like the Reapers uh, scythe over his head. Uh, metaphorically speaking, he's got to adjust to playing on the NBA level. And now a pick and roll point guard is 
trying to learn how to run the freaking triangle offense as a rookie. And then on top of it, he suffered a hip injury, I think in his second year or third year. Um, and hip injuries are really difficult to adjust to uh, and, and recover from and everything. So I, obviously he didn't have a very good career, but I, I, I want to throw it out there, Johnny Flynn. I don't think it was your fault. <laughs> um, I think you kind of just had a bunch of uh, extreme speed bumps lined right up at the starting line line for your for you and it made it hard to like pick up speed in your career so shout out to johnny flynn sorry you got drafted by david Kahn with the sixth pick in 2009 after ricky rubio and then everything that i just said i like that you went into that though like it isn't exactly his fault in fact um funny thing sports illustrated put out a where are they now uh, piece on Johnny Flynn just two days ago. Oh, really? Recording. Yes, I they have to did. look that up. Yes, yeah. yeah, so cool they did that. So definitely make sure to check that out, kind of see what he's up to. Um, but yeah, it was unfortunate. I, I don't, when I don't mean to bag on Johnny Flynn, I'm not going to lie. When I first ever was introduced to Johnny Flynn, was playing like NBA 2K11. And I was like, oh my <laughs> God, can this guy hit a jump shot? Like I was so <laughs> mad. And looking back on it now, it's not his fault that he was the player he was. A lot of players have shaky jump shots, can penetrate to the rim, undersized, whatever the case may be. That hip injury obviously did some damage, and it's very unfortunate that it did. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of him being like an Anthony Bennett or, Mar- or Darko Milicic, of being a guy who would have been in the NBA, just not at the draft selection that he was. And therefore, the expectations, mm-hmm. the outsized expectations that were attached to that, went on to him you know by all accounts great guy had the charisma the leadership the swagger all of that you would definitely have seen a really good piece you know late in the lottery whatever the case may be but to draft him six and say okay the franchise is part yours especially since our next point guard isn't coming over for another year and we don't have a roster fit to your strengths because we are doing the triangle with kurt rambis (laughs) um yeah that that causes some issues and it get it, it it gets magnified when steph becomes steph and even like uh, you know some of the the other players um, who who you know had strong careers afterwards um, who were taken after him that magnifies like oh so not only did you take him after you selected another point guard but you selected him ahead of you know Steph Curry Ty Lawson Drew Holiday. Um, I think Darren Collison was in that draft class too, yes, all of whom had pretty good to really good careers. So um, Johnny Flynn kind of hit the the jackpot in terms of like bad luck for starting your NBA career. Unfortunately, he did. That is true. Um, as we kind of continue on before we get to our own exercise, any other thoughts by David Kahn highlights or lowlights you want to kind of bring out here real quick? Obviously, the 2009 draft was the seminal moment. Yes. You know, the, 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 the one tent pole a moment for his career, but any others that come to mind? Yeah. So um, another one was uh, I I forget which, which draft year it was, um, but he actually in the second round selected somebody who was actually too old and was ineligible to be selected in the draft. Um it was like Tangway. Oh, the Infe Tangue Nagumbo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I yes. forget which season it was, so, but like, fun, yes. Uh-huh. Funny story. Um, 
this is a deep take, but uh, 2K12, 2K13 had a port for the PSP. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a portable gamer. I used to play that game all the time. Tangan Gumbo was in it. And okay. they also, apparently, that's just, I mean, 2K didn't care that much about, yeah. no yeah. love yeah. lost between me and 2K, but 2K didn't care that much about, um, you know, the roster or whatever. So they put him in the game with the age that David Kahn thought that Nagumbo was at 24 or whatever. Mm. So I used to play with him almost out of spite. He was just like a generic, like <laughs> a really good shooter, had like a good dunk package. And so I'd grab him and be like, yeah, I'm playing with a guy who isn't even eligible for the NBA in this time, but it's okay. <laughs> um, so it's funny. That's why I knew it would assume you at the top. Yeah. The, talk about doing your research, both David Kahn and 2K, but back to you, sir. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and then the, the, the other thing that kind of um, comes to mind isn't even necessarily a bad signing per se, but just a bad outing publicly at the summer league uh, talking about after they signed um, Darko Milicic as a free agent, which at the time I actually thought was a solid free agent signing. It's not like they expected him to be great. Just a, you know, shot blocking rim protector who can help out. Um, but at the summer league, he was actually sitting with Chris Weber and he was talking about how uh, Darko Milicic reminded him a little bit of Lade and even Chris Weber himself. And even said that being able to sign Darko was like mana from heaven. Um, and it was just a really, really poor understanding of uh who he was with and (laughs) not not uh the greatest use of tact in terms of how to communicate like yeah we're really excited about him and we we like his passing ability and that sort of thing um but you probably shouldn't when talking with chris Weber on on a, a televised broadcast and everything talk about how he reminds you of a Vladi Divots and Chris Webber himself, both of whom will be Hall of Famers. Like, yeah, it was it was a severe misstep, made even more awkward when Chris Webber like twice was like, "Please do not put me in yep. dark on the same sentence." Yep, like in the middle of it, like I, 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 I'm, and he kept saying, "Well, don't you agree?" Con kept pressing it. Well, what do you think? Yes. Don't you agree? And Webber's <laughs> like, "No, I don't," and we're not gonna put me and David. <laughs> we're not gonna put me and Darko in the same sentence. I was like. Yikes! The cringe. So no, it was definitely something that was true. And you're right. I think in that, in a nutshell, you know, I think my favorite memory was the show of hands press conference that David Kahn did after it was the end of the 2010 season, if I remember. And he, I mean, it was another disappointing year. Uh, slight improvement. Uh, they went from 15 and 67. The Timberwolves did to 1765. Uh, they were 10 points per game, but they were dead last in def- defense. And so he did like a State of the Wolves address at the end of the season and did a show of hands line. He's like, hey, I think we've made some improvements down the line. I think, you know, uh, you know, Ruby will be here soon. Uh, Kevin Love's played better. Like some of our role players stepped up, particularly in the end of the season, you know, when teams really don't care. But, you know, we got some real big wins against the Lakers and whatever. So, like, what do y'all think? Show of hands. He's looking around and for like maybe 10 seconds. It's silence. As he looks down for a hand, he's like, oh, I guess not. No one really thinks so, but but I do. 
well, yeah, of course you do, Khan. Like, that's the point. So it was hilarious for him to ask the room and his complete inability to read the said room, get no hands in the Keras conference when you were touting the improvements you've made. Um, it just seemed to illustrate the view that Khan saw that the rest of us normal people didn't, or us lowly people. I don't want to say normal. Khan was special. So th- this brings up one of the times I did meet Khan was uh, at a career conference thing in vegas at summer league and he was a a speaker and i forget which year it was um must have been i think 2011 um because one of the attendees was from utah and during the q a section uh raised his hand and you know he was called upon and uh, he's like, I don't really have a question. I just want to thank you for Al Jefferson. And Khan, without like missing a beat, almost like he had it preloaded, was like, thanks for taking his remaining X amount of dollars on his contract. Oh, wow. Like, Interesting, man. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't necessarily the, the, the... disagree in terms of like, was he worth the money at the, that point in time, given you know what your team was like? But kind of a a harsh rebuttal to you know uh somebody who was there hoping to break into the league and and was kind of perhaps a little too eager to make a statement instead of a question to uh you know a gm but uh i thought it was interesting that con was just right there out of the gate like thanks for taking his contract that is kind of fun i'm not gonna lie to you like wow i mean it, it just goes to show you the kind of person that he at least presented himself through the media. There you go. Because yeah. I think it's always one side you see in front of the cameras and one side behind. There's probably more you can read into a person, but that's a whole nother thing. This is the Round Ball Ramble podcast, yeah. not the Round Ball Psychology podcast. So <laughs> I'm not going to go too deep into no. it. But, yeah, I think it's definitely interesting. But with that being said, you know, four years, um, the Timberwolves in all had just a horrific um, – time of it uh throughout his four years and mind you he did show improvement every year as funny as that may be uh 2010 season finished 15 and 67 2010 2011 season finished 17 65 2012 2011 2012 season finished 26 and 40 and he closed out with the 2012 to 2013 season finishing 31 and 51 well well below standards he thought he could win a championship in a set number of years I mean, that didn't happen, but I did think it was funny that with all of that, like, improvement, however slight and under-talked about because of how big he had, you know, kind of screwed up the team in the long run, it was funny to see that. But I think the biggest thing to kind of close out on the con retrospective before going into our own uh, analysis is the little bit of business that occurred during the 2012 season, you know, where you had a 23-year-old Kevin Love. Fresh off averaging 24 points and 14 rebounds per game. He had signed a four-year extension that included an opt-out after the third, which you go, hmm, that's curious. But to make it even more curious, that wasn't even Love's desired option. Love wanted the full five-year extension, committing himself as the face of the franchise. But for reasons that were never clearly disclosed, Khan pushed for a shorter deal. Oh, it was. It it was disclosed. It was disclosed. It it, it just wasn't. uh, It wasn't that clearly about the Kevin Love thing. Uh, Khan didn't want to give him the five-year extension because that would have prevented him from giving that to Ricky. Oh, choosing. 
Oh wow! Yeah, so even more interesting. Uh, which which wow. which gets us into the whole concept of um, for for lack of a better term, what what some people call a uh, basketball orphans, um, and your guys, and while Kevin Love was obviously the best player for the Timberwolves during Con's era, um, Con didn't draft him. He wasn't Con's guy. Ricky was Con's guy. Ricky mm. was the guy he moved off, you know, uh, Randy Foy, Mike Miller for. He made a big show of like, we don't care if you come over a year down the line. We want you specifically. Ricky was his guy. And in spite of all the evidence that like Kevin Love, you should lock him down as long as you can right now. Khan was still holding out that like, no, Ricky is the face of this franchise because he's my guy. I drafted him. I'm in my head. He is the Minnesota Timberwolves, not Kevin Love. Wow. Wow. Well, there you go there. I, I mean, it makes sense as someone who plays a lot of these GM type games when I'm, I have a type, you know, and you want to ride with that guy thicker, Thin, and if you inherit a guy that as talented as Kevin Love was compared to Rubio, as clearly showing of being the face of the franchise over Rubio, Rubio was always a very good ancillary player. Um, you gave an excellent breakdown. I appreciate that because I was never fully sure, and that makes total sense now. But even then, it just shows how short-sighted it was. And yes, yes, you know, Love was drafted under Kevin McHale's administration, which is before cons. However, he'd already shown himself. Like I said, 24 points and 14 rebounds per game at age 23. Yes, it was evident. Events of the talent, exactly. So, fun, fun, fun there. And yeah, I do, that, that, mm-hmm. I do think there's like one other big con retrospective we have to touch upon before we get into uh, how we would approach things, Let's which is the drafting of Derek Williams number two after they already had Kevin Love and had traded from Michael Beasley. Yes. Okay, we're going to have a disagreement on this yeah. philosophically. I know we are. But <laughs> so, let's do it. the problem is at that point in time, Kevin Love and Michael Beasley are your two best players, right? They're they're getting the bulk of the minutes. Uh and, so Kevin Love's getting the bulk of the minutes at the 4. Michael Beasley's getting the bulk of the minutes at the 3, and Derek Williams is probably best served playing the 4. And even if you think Derek Williams was one of the best prospects in that draft class. And at the time, I think almost everyone agreed. He he was definitely one of the best dra- uh, prospects in that draft class, definitely worthy mm-hmm. of the t- second pick heading into that draft class. It didn't work out that way <laughs> in part because as a rookie coming in, how do you establish your confidence, your role and your rhythm when you're essentially splitting time with the two like leaders of the team, not only in terms of like profile, but in terms of touches, minutes, production and everything. How do you kind of put your foot in and it, like put your foot down, make your, your uh, stand and like stamp your place on the organization when you are playing minutes behind Kevin Love minutes behind Michael Beasley that or and you can't really like slide love and Beasley down a slot and then have like a ridiculously horrible defense with Kevin Love, Michael Beasley, and Derek Williams up front. So 
that was a case of like, I understand the appeal of best player available and stuff, but mm-hmm. when you look at best player available, you have to clarify it for your team. And given that context, unless you were trading Beasley or Love, there was very low odds that Williams would have reached his potential with the Timberwolves behind Beasley and Love. I mean, I yeah. Looking back on it, I still held out hope that you could have a tantalizing athletic front court between Beasley and um, Williams, and that almost as a precursor to now, Love would just be at the five. And yes, defensively, this team would not be super great. But I, the potential for me, at least, I don't know. I was a big Derrick Williams fan. Like when we're gonna talk about 2009 and 2010 to a certain extent, I was more or less a general fan. wasn't really diving in, wasn't really into it like that. But come 2011, the draft time came, and I was all in on Derrick Williams. Had a jersey of his for the longest. Really thought he'd be a star in Minnesota. I took it and helped me with that because it totally made me think he could be. Um, and you're right, some of his <laughs> you know flaws of at being six foot eight, being more naturally suited at a power forward spot. Playing the small forward, not being the best shooter to take advantage of that, not being the best dribbler, having natural athleticism for the open floor. But again, playing under Kurt Rambis' triangle offense, where mm-hmm. a lot of these Wolves' strengths were mitigated because you didn't have the type of offensive system, you know, uh, best utilized to bring the most out of them. So. I think that was also back to as well i think you froze for a split sec uh oh one sec can you hear me yeah i can hear you now you're good now okay weird cool cool uh so what i i i froze for a second there but i was talking about talking how about rambus the office system yeah the system wasn't the best utilized, but as we get into this draft, we'll see some better options that will definitely make the Derrick Williams one look a little short-sighted. But um, with that being said, Josh, are you ready to go into the the uh, the practicum uh, part of this? Yeah. From this point forward, we'll act as if instead of David Kahn getting hired, Corbin and I were hired as co-GMs. So that's how we're approaching this series going forward is we'll reflect upon what went well and what didn't go well. And and with Khan, there unfortunately wasn't much that went well. Uh, uh, And then we'll look at how we might have approached things um, over their tenure uh, as well to to get a a different kind of perspective. And admittedly, there's going to be a little hindsight bias, but we're also going to try to approach this from how we viewed things at that time um, in terms of the, the players we liked and everything. So. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's get started. We are going in the way, way back machine back to the 2009 NBA draft. And before we go into what, who we would pick with the selections, let's talk about that fifth pick, the wizard's deal. Mm-hmm. where the Wolves sent Randy Foy and Mike Miller to the win-now, quote-unquote, Washington Wizards in exchange for the fifth pick in this draft. First, as the GM on your end, Josh, do you still make that deal? I'm a little hesitant from the perspective of uh, Mike Miller was one of the noted best teammates 
like by everybody he played with and would have provided a good veteran presence, especially for a, a young team that's going to be, you know, having some some growing pains and everything, plus provided the type of shooting and just general um, perimeter offensive glue that would help a young team kind of navigate some of the lows of a season. Um, that said, ultimately, it's rare that you can get two top six picks in a any draft. So I, I understand it. And, and also Mike Miller was going to be a, a free agent after that season um, was already 28, I believe. Um, so didn't really align with the likes of the 20 year old Kevin Love or the 24 year old uh, Al Jefferson, Corey Brewer's 22, et cetera. So um, I'm, I'm okay with it. I'd, I'd feel a little bad sending Mike Miller away, but I, I, I would agree with it. But before we even get into that, I think the number one thing that Con messed up was let's do the triangle and let's hire Kurt Rambis to do that triangle. So I think my big focus first off as, as a co-GM would be Corbin, let's come together and let's find us a, a coach, a coach that we think will accentuate the players that we have mm. and accentuate the players that we're interested in. Um, in this draft class, we know we're drafting at least one point guard, <laughs> one rookie point guard. Um, yep. And Obviously, you do the fifth pick deal at that time to kind of put yourself in position to get somebody like a Ricky Rubio, potentially with one of those two picks. Um, And so for that reason, I think you focus on uh, a coach that's going to embrace transition, that's going to embrace a looser framework and a looser structure, if you will, and let, you know, the point guard that you select kind of do what they need to do to to be successful and put their stamp on the team and stuff. So for that reason, I'd probably look towards uh, Mike Budenholzer, um, who at the time had just come off of like uh, a season after winning the, the championship with San Antonio as the lead assistant. Um, always emphasize teamwork, player and ball movement, communication, spacing. Obviously, since he's been a head coach, we've seen reasons to maybe not like how he uh, does some of his minutes allocations and stuff like that. But we can also see that he's generally been a pretty good head coach in terms of like regular season success, getting to the playoffs and obviously won a championship uh, with the Bucks. So I think coach like Budenholzer would have been a much better fit than a Kurt Rambis looking to run the triangle with one of the youngest teams in the league. Definitely interesting. I like where you're going with it. Not the biggest Budenholzer fan as, as from what we've seen now, That's but fair. back then yeah. I absolutely would be. I mean, my, my pick was a little more bold. He actually just got, um, he was forced to resign from his team as his front <laughs> office wanted a young up and coming coach to help revive the Warriors fortunes at the time. But noted oh, winner, <laughs> third course. coach in NBA history to win a thousand games at the time uh, back in 2001. You know who I'm going with. Yep. I'm going with Don Nelson. That's I fair. Th- I-, I like either of those guys. <laughs> either of them is going to bring a lot more uh, movement and more um, 
for lack of a better term, like authenticity for the players in the system, they're going to have a little less rigid structure and let the players kind of, you know, do what they need to do to feel comfortable and stuff. So exactly, yeah, yeah. I'm cool with either of them. Right, there you go. And also, as long I mean, as we not- have a different head coach and we're not running the triangle, I'm happy. There we go. Exactly. And I was going to say there's precedent for, you know, David Kahn hiring older legendary coaches. We saw right after the Kurt Rams mm-hmm. experiment, he was able to lure Rick Allman over to Minnesota uh, yep. for a couple of years there. So there is something there. But you're right. First order of business, a con, I mean, not con, Rambus by. I wish the Lakers would say the same thing in the front office, but that's not my point. Um, but now we go to the fifth pick. I would do that deal, Josh. Um like, I just feel like Foy was a mistake. Uh, you got to realize, you know, in the front office, you make a decision. Like, don't double down on it. I mean, granted, it wasn't the decision of, I would not even want to imagine what Khan would have done in the 2006 NBA draft to draft Randy Foy over Brandon Roy. But the point being, it was there. You know, Randy Foy, solid shooter. Uh, I would say a decent secondary ball handler, not a whole lot else. So him gone and Mike Miller, though, being a boost in the locker room, being a very good shooter, 28, again, mm-hmm. you know, no. So I, I would send yep. both of them over the fifth pick. And so with that being said, if we have the fifth pick and the sixth pick, let's first look at the candidates for the fifth pick. And you laid these out pretty nicely, I think, in order. Um, you had Stephen Curry, Drew Holiday, and DeMar DeRozan. I threw in a fourth one. Okay. Uh, although I liked him better for the sixth pick, I wanted him in the picture, and that was a Jeff Teague. Yeah, I'd probably uh, not go with Jeff Teague personally, but um, <laughs> no, not like, for I'd the probably pick, have Ricky to... on this list too. Uh, I, I I forgot to put Ricky on the list, but like I also uh, I... wouldn't necessarily be too eager to draft a player who specifically kind of suggested like I don't want to play for you. Um, which I don't Ooh. think Ricky. Oh, Ricky. I, I don't think Ricky necessarily went the full like Ejian Leon or your guy Stevie franchise um, on Minnesota, but Ricky also was like, "Yeah, I think I'm going to play a little bit longer <laughs> overseas before I come over." And and in that context, I, I'd have to slot him down behind the, those guys that we talked about. But I would still probably put him ahead of Teague, honestly. Oh, see, that's funny. I looked at Teague's numbers, and like I was already not sold on rook, rookie in general. Thought yep. nice, flashy guard, but after that, I was like, no. But looking at Teague's numbers, and I, like I said, I wrote in my notes, I like him better for the sixth pick than the fifth. Yeah. But yeah. I want him in the area. I have him ahead of Rubio. I think that I'm looking that's- for one, someone stylistically who actually made an all-star team for one. Um, you know, I mean, that doesn't mean a whole lot. Future bias, future bias, but yeah, uh, uh, yeah, that that is very true. But also, <laughs> I, I I liked his more aggressive scoring. I think if you look at the numbers between him and Rubio, yeah, definitely more um, of a scorer. much better of a shooter. And we'll go on to him more later. But yeah. I mean, let's first go with a guy we know will be off the board in the you know benefit hindsight, but also he was pretty high even back then. That's oh, yeah, yeah. Stephen Curry. Um, what are your thoughts on him? Obviously. Well, well, first off, this draft was really interesting because Steph could have gone as high as two. Um, everybody mm. in the Memphis front office and the coaching staff wanted Steph at two, but the owner at the time preferred Hashim Thabit. And then the other interesting thing is that Sam Presti and the Thunder actually had Thabit ahead of Harden on their board. So if Steph had gone to Thabit probably would have gone three and then Harden might have been four or five or something like that. Um, so Steph wound up obviously slipping, if you will. Um, but 
realistically, Steph never should have slipped, and he was highly thought of at the time. People didn't expect him to become a unanimous MVP or to become the greatest shooter of all time, but but people definitely liked Steph a great deal. So with the fifth pick, we would have taken Steph Curry. I feel like that's pretty cut and dry. That was a great way of breaking it down. I like the inside of that second pick as well, Josh. But, yep. yeah, Steph Curry, bona fide first person there. Best fit for any team because he sets the culture of the team. He sets the identity of the team. Amazing shooting. You know, great fit with love if you want to do it that way. Or yes. you want to do a total rebuild, have Curry as a cornerstone. I mean, he's one of the top 10 players in the NBA history. Like, yeah, that happens. So. Arguably the most impactful offensive player ever. Yeah, I mean, I have, like, Monte Ellis and a few others there, but right after that, (laughs) I'm kidding, obviously. (laughs) Well, I mean, if Monte have it all, then by definition, no one else can have it all. So, I mean, logically speaking, your argument makes sense. (laughs) This is why we work so well together, because, exactly, Monte have it all, and there it is. There's nothing more to say. I'm not going to dignify any more responses, but looking at (laughs) – Let's say worst case scenario, and uh-huh. you know, hindsight twenty twenty, I'm sure others would. Curry's off the board at five. Um, what are your next kind of tertiary options? Uh, yeah, for that fifth pick. Well, it would it also depend on who would slide down, right? If Curry, if Curry's off the board at five, that means somebody like a Harden or a Tyreek Evans probably slides. I was never really a big Tyreek Evans fan personally. Um, I'd imagine my focus would probably shift to probably somebody like Drew Holiday. Um, I I liked him then. I like him even more now. Um, mm-hmm. Drew's also another guy who's great, like uh, personality, pers- uh, like great culture setter type kid um, coming out and obviously has gone on to have a really strong career. Uh, I'm not as big a, a fan of that DeRozan archetype as you are, but I would, I would definitely be open to us having a conversation about like potentially taking DeRozan. Uh, and obviously I would prefer Harden if Harden was the guy who slipped, but uh, if it was like Tyreek Evans who slipped, I'd, I'd probably lean more Drew or DeRozan. Okay. Yeah. I'm obviously a big um, DeRozan fan, that is my second pick for number five. And the reason why I love Drew Holiday, I think Drew Holiday is a very, you know, best two-way player available. Always find it fine to say two-way players with the NBA. But it's true. Someone who yep. can perform, you know, at an A plus, at an A level on both ends of the ball. Um, I think he's better as an elite role player than a guy you build around. Um, you know, we didn't see a whole lot in Philadelphia. I think he did better uh, alongside Anthony Davis, Tyreek, and Eric Gordon in New Orleans. Was he did start to separate himself. Oh, 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 Heinz. Uh oh, we're doing hindsight well, too. I know you're saying Uh-oh. you're already no, doing hindsight too. Or, I know, so, man, I know it's hard, but, but like he you. he was an all star in Philly, so no, ab- absolutely. I, I'm but but yes, yeah, yeah. a hard time there for sure. But, um, uh, no, I guess you're right. I mean, looking at that, that's a good pick. I like DeRozan not only because I think he's the best score behind Curry at this draft slot. Yeah. Um, which is crazy considering the plethora of very good scoring options that they were, but a career 24 and four guy, you know what I mean? Uh, he could project as your second best player, I think, 
um, on a solid winning team. If he's your main guy, we have saw that in Toronto. Yeah. We saw that in Chicago. You're probably tapping out, you know, middle of the pack with some pretty glaring weaknesses. However, if he is your second best player, whoever that would be, whether that's, I don't want to say Kevin Love, but that guy's already on your roster or you pick someone else, I think he is the best fit off the gate to say, okay, you know, we can kind of build around this guy while we find another piece to tag along with him. So th- this gets into like a bigger philosophical thing that I'm sure you and I have talked about and we'll talk about even more in depth <laughs> later. But um, DeRozan, to his credit, has become m- m- like extremely efficient in his role and has become a really great playmaker. But it took him like a decade plus to get there. Um Yes, it did. You know, you know, you know. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> I give him a lot of credit. Like, he's come a long way, but like his archetype was more akin to like Jerry Stackhouse, like super athletic guy who puts up shots, but wasn't necessarily taking um, or targeting highly efficient shots or necessarily helps his teammates get better. He was a scorer who wasn't necessarily like, that efficient of a score and personally i'm not a big fan of building around such a player um that's just my approach and again at this point in time i do really like derozan i think derozan has become a playmaker who who elevates his teammates play he has become a very efficient scorer considering the types of shots he he takes and stuff um Mm -hmm. at the time and for a large part of his career that was not the case so i get the appeal of derozan and like i said i i still had him as one of my candidates for the fifth and sixth picks um but i would still have preferred something else just because i don't think that archetype rarely works out and and it rarely works out, particularly for the drafting team. Those players okay. usually come into their own on second or third contracts, which are typically with a different team. That's that's an excellent point. I was going to say, actually, you know, he raises this <laughs> percentage to just under 20%, but that did take year four. The 2013-2014 season was really, really when he broke out. And it's kind of funny to think about if you compare him to a guy like a Tyreek Evans who had mm-hmm. – uh, DeMar DeRozan like numbers yep. immediately and then never approached those numbers again where DeRozan was a little slow in starting that but once he mm. got there like I said you're right for the beginning he was just like a, a shooting kind of guy uh mid-range get to the basket not three-point shooter we know it's still not a thing but he had the assist percentage of 4.9 8.6 10.8 and 12 even yeah. for his first it, four years it grew then, yep 18.9 a dip of 17 and then no lower than 20 for the rest of his career, yeah. uh, really going up at a high of 32 uh, the season before the Spurs, his last year there. So I definitely see where you're coming from there, and I think I am using, of course, some projection of that. I just think looking back at the scouting reports of that time, I mean, people were a lot more higher on him being a main oh, scorer guard sure. than he was. So it's like, if well, I take the, the mix of uh, that's, I think everybody, ends, everybody likes scoring, first and foremost. So like... Yeah, I, I would even the, argue I mean, nowadays. That's the name of the game. I would even argue nowadays a player coming out like if DeRozan was coming out nowadays, as he was coming out of college, um, he'd still be very highly thought after and sought. Um, 
even if at this point in time we're more interested in efficiency in our scores and and that sort of thing and like playmaking mm-hmm. um and also yeah. durability harden is the only guy who's had more career games played field goals and free throws than DeRozan. yeah among 2009 picks so I get where you're coming from, and I think that would be a very heated war room debate. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Like, but, yeah. Ultimately, I think what would happen with us is we would take Steph 5, and we would take DeRozan 6. I, I, I personally would also be like, well, I kind of wanted Drew. But but I, I, I do think like if Steph is the the number one, and we already have Kevin Love and Al Jefferson and, and DeRozan, I think DeRozan doesn't necessarily have to take on a, you know, primary usage right off the bat and kind of, yeah. So mm-hmm. absolutely. And I also would, and I wrote this in my own ideal off season, I would do Drew Holiday fifth and DeRozan sixth if we didn't have Steph Curry. Oh, well, yeah. If we didn't have Steph Curry, yeah. Because you're right. Drew Holiday's the best fit. And then of course, defensively yeah, yeah. can guard some of the tougher matchups that DeRozan can't, but yeah. you still have good size at six, six with DeRozan. But going from yeah. there to the sixth pick, I do want to make the argument for Jeff Teak. Just bringing him out there. We know he won't let, you know, because uh, he played with the Wolves already, right, from 2018 2020. I got the numbers from there. 12 points, 6 assists, 36% from 3. For his career, Mm -hmm. the dude actually averaged 12.6 assists, 36% from 3. I looked it up, not a typo. So you know what you're getting from him. Consistent. Uh, Exactly. I did put the future all-star moniker there. Of course, hindsight. (laughs) I was very tempted to put Darren Collis in there, but I think that yeah, the, Darren Collison, solid guard, did not have the. I mean, Teague was solid, much more flashier numbers yeah. for the first, like I'd say, eight years of his career than Collison, but then dropped off a cliff when his decline came. I um, think. Whereas, mm-hmm. I also think Collison was more of a playmaker, and Teague was more of a scorer. So it depends if, yeah. on like what you value more. Uh, and like what you already have, but yeah. yeah, it's funny. I actually took their peak years. I took like their four peak years and compared and like assists per game and such all went to Teague, even though Teague was slightly healthier than um, Collison, which factored in as well. It's like, well, more assists go to Teague. Okay. But why? Cause of health. Well, it still factors in. However, yeah. Collison was remarkably assist consistent. We're talking 12 yeah. points between 12 and 15 points and seven and nine assists per game for like six straight years, solid shooting from three, only a hair below uh, Jeff Teague career wise. So that's another guy as well that you can make an argument for with the sixth pick, but uh, going from there, kind of picking up along 18th pick, you have a plethora of options. Do you want to kind of go into those a little bit? Yeah. So the 18th pick is where they entered into an agreement with Denver to trade the 18th pick for a future pick, which wound up being a 2010 first. Um, and honestly, out, out of the potential options, I'd probably still lean that way, um, considering that we're already bringing in two rookies. We already have a lot of youth already on the roster. Um, I'd probably be inclined to net a, a subsequent extra first in the next draft, um, especially since players like Ty Lawson wouldn't really help us at that point. Unfortunately, Drew would be off the board by that point. So we couldn't get, you know, Drew, Steph, and DeRozan as our perimeter trio. Um, But some potential candidates who were still available at that pick, um, and you'll hear these these names uh, subsequently too, Taj Gibson, uh, Danny Green, Patty Mills, Wes Matthews, and Joe Ingles, all guys who um, brought 
varying degrees of impact to NBA teams and have had long careers. Um, and, and like, I would probably look uh, after getting Steph and DeRozan and we already have Al Jefferson and Kevin Love up front. I'd probably look to a wing like a Danny Green or a Wes Matthews um, uh, if I were to use a pick like the the 18th or, or one of the subsequent picks, the 28th, 45th or 47th. You're muted, dude. <laughs> I do it once a show, and here it happened. Cha-ching, there it is. Boom, boom. Cha-ching, Thunder Moneyball. Anyway, um, going (laughs) OKC's uh, radio uh, NBA announcing team was so elite for years. And Cha-ching, Thunder Moneyball, when I was watching, (laughs) listening to Russell Westbrook, didn't happen often with it, Russ, but, you know, it happened a lot with Paul George. So, anyways, I like those picks. I think that you're right. Like, Wesley Matthews would be a solid guy. I like Joe Ingles as well. A guy who was a previous undrafted, but a do-it-all player, good size, playmaking, shot the three-ball well. Um, he's personally my favorite option there, but I'm looking for more utility. You know, a guy who yeah. can fill in some gaps, like you mentioned, and I think that you get a guy like that with size. You can do a little more on-ball than a Wes Matthews or a Danny Green. Both guys, very good. I mean, Danny Green, a, a career, you know, almost 40% three-point shooter. Taj Gibson, again, a guy, hustle player, solid fit. Already played with the Wolves, saw what he did there. Um, Patty Mills probably my least favorite fit. He's a good spot shooter. Um, I think of kinda... Patty as the uh, the Steph guy off the bench. So like he's not going to mm. get big minutes, but he can replicate a lot of the actions that Steph runs through as well. I like that. That does yeah. make sense, and that would be something I would agree with. Yeah, for sure. I think my only issue with that would of course be that he. Um, defensively i mean at least stuff is oh, different yeah. there in terms of size and profile um in a way that you know he just isn't but aside from that yeah i agree completely um going from that to the 28th pick any uh readily available thoughts on that i mean similar list of players same with the 45th and 47th pick i think you and i would probably see if we could package the 18th and the 28th pick for maybe future capital or, or see if we can also get future capital for the 28th pick. Uh, if we did mm-hmm. a trade with Denver for the uh, 2010 first uh, simply because I believe one of Danny green, West Matthews, Joe Ingles types should be available in the second round. And if they're not there at 45 and we know that Wes Matthews and Joe Ingles were, but, but uh, if we were unsure, we'd always have the 47th and the 45th pick to trade up to get one of those guys. So I feel like we could get a Wes Matthews or a Joe Ingles or a Danny green in the second round. Um, And because we already are bringing in two rookies and again we have a young team i'd probably look to trade that 28th pick first for future draft capital what do you think that makes sense i I actually would agree with you completely on that i think either you know having more assets you know in the cupboard just red glass cap emergency whatever the case may be are great especially if you don't like the value back there i've done a few simulations trying to you know figure out who would be available there didn't really necessarily like the fit um, and so it also puts you in play if you do grab some additional picks and you want to trade up for a player. I was partial to Patrick Patterson back then. A guy like that. I like you know, that. Yeah. There you go. Like you can make a move with those picks to acquire that player if that was that guy on your main target board. Mm. Um, so I agree with you completely for that. But yeah, I mean, aside from that, I mean, we 
kind of have the 45th and 47th pick in that same general ballpark. Don't really think we need to dive in too much into that. Mm-hmm. Um, in that same thing, whether we are going to isolate the players we want, if they slip further, like I said, Joe Ingles went undrafted. You know what I mean? Like yep. that guy would be available. Want to take those two picks and let's par- parlay them to like a 2012 second or mm-hmm. something like that. Yep. See what happens. That'd be nice as well. So at least we have the option there. Um, but now we move on to the 2010 NBA draft. Um, and just saying the stage here, 2012, 2010 NBA draft was definitely an interesting one. This was uh, the first look for Khan to obviously put his print on the team was the 2009 draft. But the 2010 draft, you looked at the Wolves. They had five draft picks, three in the first round, one in the top five. It's not bad, right? You had talent like John Wall. You had DeMarcus Cousins. You had Derek Favors. You Evan also had Turner Evan, was a big uh, I was about to say Evan Turner. Yep. yep. Greg, Greg Monroe. Monroe. Yep. Uh, Paul George and Gordon Hayward were also in the top 10. Al Uminu as well. Now, mm-hmm. we all know, you know, kind of decided to go in a different direction. Selected Wesley Johnson, uh, the, the flying, high-flying shooting guard from Syracuse. To be fair to to Khan, uh, Wall, Evan Turner, and Derek Favors were all off the board, and the two players, your two arguably best players at that point in time, were Al Jefferson and Kevin Love. So Demarcus doesn't seem quite as appealing if you already have like a a, a young center and power forward combo already in place, and ones who have been to varying degrees, productive. Now, on the one hand, I give you that, and I don't want to not be fair to Khan because, like, Khan is great. But <laughs> at the same time, I push back by saying that you end up trading Al Jefferson without getting a replacement. So, oh, like, yeah, I agree. If, 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 if you, you're going to say you trade Al Jefferson for Darko, like, like you clear the way with Al Jefferson in general. If the idea was you were going to move Jefferson anyway, yes, I think you'd have an he inside. did eventually mm-hmm. in – the off season in the off season 2011. To, yeah, yeah. Yep. Moved him over uh, to Utah. Utah. Um, yeah. It ended up being for Costa Kufis, a 2011 first round pick that became DeMontis Maniunas, and then a 2012 first rounder, which became Terrence Jones. Two, yep. you know, decent role players, former Rockets. Getting two first rounders for, for uh, Al Jefferson. I like, and we'll we'll get into this, but I have the feeling you and I probably have a similar idea, which is we would look to get, that future capital for Al Jefferson now, and then probably mm-hmm. draft Demarcus. At exactly, yeah, and, yeah. and you and you said, especially since I do like a potential inside outside fit with both Love and Cousins. Now, yes. defensively, yep. not at all, but both could. You know, we saw him, the Cousins came in with the nice mid range shot, eventually stretched out to three. Kevin Love had already done the same thing. By this point, the transformation was already there. Uh, both could loom in the post. It'd be fire. Um, going back to Johnson, both really listen, good passers too. And that, yes, Steph's passes for the Which position. We, in this context, we have Steph Curry, we have DeRozan yeah. having two additional, like, plus passers in the front court would further enable players like Steph and DeRozan to get easier shots. 100%. And yeah, I imagine just the boards that would be gobbled up. Like, it would be something nasty. So I agree See, with you. See, I knew there. you'd make DeRozan's early field goal percentage stuff a positive. <laughs> you knew I would. You knew I would. It's how I had to spin it, man. But um, listen, as far as Johnson, he'd have 16 points per game on 50% shooting, shot 41% from three, really came in with the pedigree of being a great shooter. Um, Just that's what he was kind of billed as. However, 
the knocks on him even back then. He was already 23, which on the developmental yep. curve, he was who he was. And as we saw through his career, he was who he was. Um, he also had very shaky ball handling and passing skills, which remained that way throughout the duration of his career. And he offered a little in the way of development, you know, especially when you consider that Cousins was selected one pick after. So I know we have yeah. Cousins there, but I want to get your take on other options that you liked yeah. over in that 2010 uh, fourth pick. Well, like, I, I also – so Wesley Johnson, I will say I disagree with the concept that a player who is, like, over 20 is who they are. Like, that's not accurate. I know I am way different uh, just from myself two years ago than, than uh, you know, I, I'd imagine Steve Nash didn't win MVPs until his, like – like, 30 i think age 30 yeah, age so 30 like, 31 the, we we've seen derozan it took derozan our own sixth pick quite a long time to develop to the point where he was the all nba player that he is 24 which right? you were already going to get a wesley johnson at though i'm just saying <laughs> <But> i know <laughs> i push i push back between against that that cognitive bias and basketball evaluation of like this player is who they are already i don't believe in that that said his his big um claim to fame as a prospect in that draft class was the three-point shooting and his defensive impact the problem mm. is he went to college at syracuse <laughs> syracuse yep. runs a very particular defensive system that tends to bolster uh people's defensive counting stats which can make them appear to be better defenders than they actually are Mm. um and like you mentioned he didn't really have a handle he wasn't really gonna be somebody who could even necessarily consistently attack a closeout and and maintain or expand upon an advantage and with our team that that we have and in staff DeRozan love um you want people who can build upon and expand uh, an advantage instead of just catching and shooting. So um, I did want to give Wes Johnson and that, uh, that bias some discussion, but um, Mm -hmm. like Marcus uh cousins, I think is the clear talent there. I remember uh, at the time talking with people in Vegas at summer league and talking about how, like I thought DeMarcus cousins was a better talent than John wall. Um, and the, the other obvious guys, especially if you are looking for wing help, help are Gordon Hayward and Paul George. And at the, at the time, Paul George still seemed not raw, but he, he seemed a little less baked, if you will. <laughs> than uh like wesley johnson or gordon hayward so i think at that point in time my board probably would have been to marcus cousins hayward george i like that yeah i like that i went just opposite i did cousins george hayward but same thing so close so close you really couldn't kind of cut it and also i have to agree with you on that uh, especially when you talked about age and how that isn't exactly accurate uh, a lot of demarcation for a prospect. I found myself debating that when it came to 
uh, Chris Duarte a few drafts yeah, ago. Yeah, exactly. In terms of how I look at him. So uh, in this case, I, I meant that that was a concern going in, one that ended up being confirmed true. by it, it, his It did happen. Case. It did happen with him. That is yeah. true. <laughs> but no, no. I, but yes, I definitely yeah. – I, I'm glad you brought out because I didn't mean to lay and that as, as a main – and it's good for a basketball discourse philosophy yeah. type of understanding that, hey – you know, people change, you know, skill sets change. You get guys like Kevin Love, who were not three-point shooters at all. DeMarcus Cousins, same thing, who grew that. Brooke Kevin, Lopez, Kevin how many Love, years did it take Brooke Lopez to become yeah. the sharpshooter he is now? Kevin Love, when he was drafted, there were literally memes and jokes of him being the Pillsbury Doughboy. And then we've now seen Kevin Love being a cover athlete for S. Uh, like SI's body issue, or was it ESPN's body issue? It was like, ESPN, but yeah. Like the dude, people change. <laughs> mm-hmm. And when you, uh, like, I think the, the issue is like using heuristics like that as a set standard. Like, for example, players under six feet almost never turn out. That doesn't necessarily mean that this player won't buck that trend you know and and i think sometimes and i'm not saying you i'm just saying general consensus uh, a lot of the discourse around the draft is like oh he's a a junior or like desmond bain who clearly heading into that draft should have been selected much higher Mm -hmm. what like fell to 30th because teams were like yeah but he is who he is he he he's he's old and it's like he's not even old he he's not even just old. barely started drinking if he wanted to <laughs> like yeah yeah no i love that you said that and you know what there's gonna be another we're gonna have to do a, like you said more of a yeah a piece on that soon because i do like these philosophies especially when it comes to the draft but no mm-hmm. very good point to bring out here for sure so kind of looking at that that's it's kind of cut and dry on our fourth pick cousins hayward george yeah some in the area however fell to us um so then, you know, um, with the 23rd pick, uh, it turned out that Khan selected Trevor Booker with that pick. Then he would trade Booker and uh, Hamadi Ndai uh, to the Wizards for Lazar Hayward and Nemanja Bielitsa. Uh, Hayward and Pat last pass his rookie contract, uh, and then Bielitsa didn't join Minnesota until well after Khan was gone. But mm-hmm. any options that you like personally for that 23rd pick, are you making that priority to trade up for assets um, are you shopping that pick? I know in one of my simulations I did, I shopped that pick with Kevin Love to see what I could get. I'm getting Carmelo, but that was just that was just <laughs> my own. Did I take that deal? You I know, bet I your know. bottom dollar I did, but that's not the point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> again, it was just me going off there. Yeah. But did you like anyone at 23rd? Now, mind you, this is a spot where, uh, like I said, you know. Yeah. So like. This class, I don't think there was a whole lot of like there were a couple of solid players um mm-hmm. who who would go on to be potentially uh helpful players. Um obviously the the most notable guy is Jeremy Lynn, who went undrafted. Um, but also even if we did and I did like Jeremy Lynn going into that draft, I didn't obviously expect Lynn sanity or anything like that, but mm-hmm. um we already have Steph Curry. Um, we probably have a veteran backup point guard. Uh, you know, um, Lynn Ooh, might be a consideration. Uh, other players I liked at the time uh, who wound up going in the second round, Landry Fields. I like Landry Fields. Um, I also actually really like Jarvis Varnado, who uh, at the time when he completed his college career was actually the the like 
leader in blocks in college history. Um, so I thought he was like an interesting uh, prospect. But ultimately, I think I would probably again, we have a really young team. We're we just traded to, um, Al Jefferson to get subsequent future picks. Um, I don't think we can realistically trade up to try to get Hayward or George as well. Um, so I, I would probably look to convert that pick into future draft capital or see if there was a veteran uh, who could come in and, and be like a, a three and D veteran or, um, you know, somebody who could come in and back up boogie and love, you know? Yeah, I get you on that. I think um, for me, it was interesting because I, like I said, saw the options available and were like, nope, we're trading that pick. But I mean, if I had to like rank my candidates in order, I like a bigger kind of wing with some balls, the distribution skills and Lance Stevenson kind of, you know, kind of out there, but you know what you get with him. Uh, Jeremy Lin was the guy I have. Ironically, Nemanja Belitsa, I still think was nice. I like Belitsa. You know, and, and Belitsa would be a good uh, backup to love, have a very stylistically similar kind of like, yeah, can, can space, can move the ball well. Yeah, yeah. Yep, so I would have done that. Um, and then last but not least, a guy to come off the bench, another big, yes, but a guy who was a project will take a couple years anyway, Hassan Whiteside. Um, I like the fact that, again, you need a backup big. You're not going to play. You know, Oddly, that's and, exactly uh, what Sacramento did. They took DeMarcus Cousins, and then they took Hassan Whiteside mm-hmm. in the second. Yeah, yeah, In the second, yeah. In this case, knowing that, hey, he's going to be a project, which I thought the Kings knew then, but, you know, the Kings going to do the Kings. But bottom line, you know, over 10 years, 12 points, 10 boards. We saw what he did, you know, at the peak of his powers in 2014 or 2015, 2016. You know, not bad to have that as a weapon off the bench and, and then kind of see what happens later. But um, with that, going to the 45th pick, I only had one candidate, Josh. Uh, I did like him and Jeremy Evans. He played seven years in the NBA. Uh, nice, bouncy, you know, pick and roll big. Dunk contest, dude. Exactly. You know, I think he would did definitely he win benefit. One? I think he did, yes. Okay, yeah. I'm yeah. trying to remember when I'm looking it up right now. Um, I, I definitely but, remember him competing in a couple of them, but I couldn't quite remember if he won one. Yeah, I feel like he did. I think um, he did, yeah. Yeah, well, he's 34. Wow, time just flies with these guys. But anyway, but no, a guy, like I said, who, you know, could definitely make um, some plays in space. He won the 2012 slam dunk contest. So there we go. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, so that would be my thing for at, 20, at, at the 45th pick. After that, uh, yeah, I would probably just trade. There was no one else there of note. Um, but yeah. I could trade to get a late, you know, future pick. Let's do that. Um, like I said, I'm a sucker in, in my simulation games of attaching that pick with the player. I kind of want to get rid of to see if that helps juice up the package. That, that's fair. So. There are also several young players on the roster that – at least I'm, I wasn't super fond of, like I, I probably would have seen what packaging some of these picks alongside players like uh, Corey Brewer, Craig Smith, Ryan Gomes and Sebastian Telfair might get us. Um, obviously that's beyond our speculation to see like, Oh yeah, they could have gotten this type of thing, but you know, anyway, all right, so to kind of summarize the 2010 draft, you know, we walk out with DeMarcus Cousins. Uh, we end up trading the 23rd pick uh, for future assets there. And then we also snag Jeremy Lin. 
kind of backup point guard insurance, nice guy to grab. Uh, so we have those guys. We do indeed, of course, move off of Al Jefferson, as we talked about, to really make room for that Cousins love, love Cousins, nope, Cousins love front court. So I was trying to make it kind of cool. Love Cousins? <laughs> Either way, I think it sounds good. We, we both know what it's hinting at. There we go. It's a there very go. Uh, arrested development <laughs> type situation. I was purposely trying to be like, we know we're both hinting at, yep, a lethal front court, but no, also. (laughs) (laughs) That too, that too, obviously. (laughs) Absolutely. But (laughs) moving on in real time, uh, during this, right after this draft is right when you get um, the the signing of uh, Darko Milicic. I just want to bring that out. An offer he couldn't refuse. Four years, $20 million with a partial guarantee on the fourth year. I just want to read the quote he put in the aftermath of making this move. Okay, just for your listening pleasure, Josh, and listeners, of course. <clears throat> Darko. We play Darko. Kurt Rambis and Dave Wool both were big proponents of making the trade. Once we obtained Darko, I could see what they were talking about. Darko has enormous skills. Both Kurt and Bill Lambier played the big man position in the league, and they felt that if it ever worked out for him psychologically, he could be one of the top three or four centers in the league. And again, the risk point was quite low when we made the trade and even the contract that we're referring to that we gave him that many talked about was really no more than a backup center gets in our leagues these days, about $4 million a year, so 0.4 for Khan. We didn't pay him as a starting center, even though we had him ticketed as our starting center. So I think there were some reasons to do it, and I recognize those reasons even today. One of the things I wish we had done a better job of there was, I only learned after he left, I think there were some family pressures. He had so many visitors, so many family members there at times. There was a lot of pressure and stress in his life that maybe would have helped him to overcome. Now, granted, in the future, Darko has spoken out about, you know, some of the oversized expectations and the mental toll that took on him. It's very serious, um, something very important. And how, you know, you try to channel that through kickboxing and other things. And it was really cool for him to do that. And I'm glad he was able to find peace, you know, outside of the NBA and still be financially compensated for his career. Um, that's great. With that being said, I, I think some of what Tom was saying, top three to four centers in the league, um, that wasn't there when he was drafted. That was never at any point in his career where you're looking at Darko Milicic, you go, okay, you know, we have Dwight Howard. You know, we got Joe Kim Noah. You know, we got to put Darko Milicic up there. Like, like that, that was... Mark yeah. the Gasols, exactly. Uh, I'm sorry, um, Al Horford. Um, up and down the list, Tim, Tim Duncan. <laughs> you could even throw Andrew Bynum in there. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Nene, I put over Dar- Like, there's so many yeah, yeah. bigs a up Mecca and down Oka the list. Um, yeah. There you go, right? Um, Kevin Garnett was Marcin still anyway, Gortat. Down the list. Gortat. Yeah. But, but, but Shaq's still around. The, the, the funny thing is, Khan might be right if we were talking an, against no one workout. Which is why Joe Dumars drafted Darko number two. two. Phones. It's because you know Darko looked really good in an empty gym. Listen, when you have the chance to be in an empty gym and you see someone shoot the the leather off the ball, you gotta take it. I don't really care who you are, unless you happen to be actual NBA player. It is but- what it is. <laughs> It is it, what it is. There it is. True words were never said. No, but <laughs> that was true. And now we go into our second pick, the one we're going to talk about right now, um, on July 12th. I thought this was a very smart move, but of course, I'm heavily biased. It Con, is a good value move. Good sure. value move. There we go. Khan sent a 2012 second-round pick that later became Bojan Bogdanovic, as well as a 2014 second-rounder that became Markel Brown, along with Cash to Miami in exchange 
from the talented but inconsistent Michael Beasley. And a little background, if you remember, Beasley, former second-round overall pick out of Kansas in 2008, had an amazing college career up to this point in the trade, and I guess you could say afterward, had been rather underwhelming in the NBA. Uh, he struggled particularly to be a second option to Dwayne Wade. Even so, he had come off a season averaging 17.9 points per game and 7.7 rebounds. And if you're wondering why a guy like Beasley, who just short of a double-double at age 21, is being moved like that, the Heat had just acquired both LeBron James and Chris Bosh, and they're in the process of shedding salary to kind of make I, that happen. Had they already, or was Beasley moving the preacher? That they were in the process of that. Okay, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Beasley, yeah, I, I, Beasley I feel like had it was one of those go. shady areas where they Beasley had, done had it to go to, to get make that. it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I almost feel like they brought him first, and then, but the point, they, they got him out. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, Khan, you know, you have the opportunity to grab a young prospect in Beasley at a low price point. When you're operating only 20, cap. only 21. 21, 22 at the time. Yeah. 21 at the time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and oh. the, the interesting thing about Beasley to me is he falls prey to the, the same um, situation that happened to Carmelo and happened to players like Joe Alexander and a couple others, uh, which I call the, time. I, well, I call the, <laughs> the college four, to MBA three problem, which is, um, and obviously it works perfectly fine for Mello because Mello is one of the most uh, skilled scorers we, we've seen in terms of breadth of how he can score. But um, Mello also was a, a much better rebounder and defender in college, right? Well, you switch a college four to an MBA three. And one, you're shifting them further out to the perimeter. So the when they initiate their offense in college against college fours, mind you, they have that quickness advantage. They have the handle advantage. When you shift it to the NBA and going against wing defenders, that quickness and that handle advantage shortens a little. Mm. Uh, on top of it, you, they're starting their actions further out. So instead of starting in like the mid post and then any actions get them closer to the rim, like a rim finish or a floater range pull up. Now you're talking about starting out at like the three point line and then they wind up closer to mid range if they do take a pull up. So you can see how that automatically impacts their efficiency. On top of it, you're moving them further away from rebounding positioning. Um, both offensively and defensively because you're slotting them at the three. So they have to defend generally players on the perimeter. So you see the rebounding um, of play and the efficiency of players in college like Beasley, like Carmelo, like Joe Alexander go down when they transition to the NBA because they're slotted in as wings. And so that's why Uh, Beasley was an amazing college player and obviously had a lot of potential and for a variety of reasons uh and i won't absolve him of all of any blame but (laughs) for a variety of reasons that didn't play out on the nba level absolutely that was a great breakdown of the 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 foibles that not only you know came to kind of define a beasley's kind of inconsistencies on the court, but also others. You mentioned Joel Alexander back in 2008. You mentioned Carmelo Anthony back in 2003. Both those guys having an adjustment to varying degrees. I think if Joel Alexander's on the one end of the spectrum and Carmelo's on the other, Beasley's in the middle. Yep. You know, kind of in that tweener status. He almost found himself 
a nice role there, but couldn't quite secure it because again, you know, kind of where he was in terms of his issues, like you described. Yeah. So no need to go into that. But the question we do have to go into is whether we make that same move here today, Josh. So at this point, we have Steph Curry, Tamar DeRozan, Kevin Love, and DeMarcus Cousins. And sorry, real quick, the next day, Al Jefferson is gone. So yeah, well, in, in, in real ours, life, we've already in, in ours, we've already moved off Al Jefferson before mm-hmm. the the selection of Demarcus Cousins. Yeah, we need um, a three. So there is clearly a spot on the wing that we'd need help with, but we already have DeRozan, Demarcus Cousins, uh, Kevin Love, and Steph. That is a lot of usage already. True. Beasley at his best is a shot hunter and Beasley's not going to get that opportunity with our team as currently constructed. Is it an amazing value play? Yes. Getting a player of Beasley's caliber uh, only two years in the NBA so far um, relatively inexpensive and you only have to give up two future seconds. Amazing value play. Would he be even Miami-level Beasley on our team without taking DeRozan's development down, without taking shots away from Steph, Boogie, and Caleb? Uh, what – I mean, you make an excellent point. That, this is this, this is, is why is, we work so well, man, because, like, we balance each other out. <laughs> this is true. No, I do like it. You're right. It, it comes lay, us, lay, lay it on us why we should – add Beasley and just go whole hog offense. I, I mean, I'm always a fan of that. You know I am. But it's not I even know. that in this way. I think that from basketball fit, it makes perfect sense. Um, it's like my high school career all over again. We had a stacked offensive five. And I was a small forward who liked playing out the left side. Um, but our center also got bring out the left side. I was a decent enough shooter, but I needed to have the ball. I needed to have the ball in my hands to, to really kind of get that going. And so I asked my coach, like, can I come off the bench? And we had a coaching philosophical difference. Bottom line, I wasn't able to come to the bench. I don't think it was effective as I could have been. But with Beasley, looking at this roster, our starting five looks great. But if we're looking at barring any other moves we have, we still have a, a, a pretty sad rotation outside of that, you know, where mm-hmm. you still have um, looking at a Corey Brewer, a Sebastian Telfair, um, a Bobby Brown, uh, mm-hmm. the artist formerly known as Mark Madsen. These guys are still yep. here with their contracts that don't expire until this upcoming season that we're currently in. So if I'm looking at Beasley, I'm saying, hey, we grab him, you know, he plays the three, but we take him out early. Let's say we bring in uh, Rodney Carney or, or Rashad McCance or something, um, or I'm sorry, Corey Brewer. And then we play through Beasley in the second unit as the offensive fulcrum there. Do so throwing this out there as co-GMs discussing that like Miami, we've had the, the talks with Miami. Mm-hmm. Do you believe Beasley two years into his NBA career, uh, off of a fantastic college season? Do you think Beasley could be talked into essentially being our sixth man? I think given where Beasley was in his career, mind you, he had a very good like statistical numbers kind of season but part of the reason he was even in play he was not a very he was still trying to figure out his role as a b star to Dwayne wade i mean if you look at the numbers that he had in miami there while yes certainly solid uh you could tell that it wasn't he had several games he had 
uh, his sweet spot in scoring. He had 21 games where he was between 20 and 29 points. He had 38 games where he was between 10 and 19 points. That doesn't exactly scream, you know, 20% usage in that way. You know what I mean? That screams more of a guy who you're trying to find your footing. Only one game, exactly, only one game did he score uh, over 30 points. And he had nine games where he was, or he had 18 games, rather, where he was between zero and nine points a game. So you're looking at a guy who is really tapping out between 10 and, and 18 points, which is great, um, but it's not it's not consistent in that way just yet. He's not the super scorer that he would become in the NBA. We saw his smooth game in college. We're in that adjustment period now. I think we can sell a guy on, hey, you know, you're going to get your shots and your time to kind of carry the offense around you in our new um, newfound offensive attack where when you come off the bench, you're going to spell Kevin Love um, or DeMarcus Cousins slides up to the four, go a little smaller, bring in the shoot off the bench, you know, Curry, Beasley pick and rolls. I don't know, like something like that where he's more of a play finisher and not the guy that you dump the ball down to to create your own offense because Miami thought that was the case and that was not. The, I, I, I do like the idea. It, it comes down to would Beasley accept being our sixth man because that's going to be the the clear the cleanest role for him, and if he's a little hesitant at being the sixth man, if he would prefer to be the starter and then subbed out and then like be the primary guy with the initial mm-hmm. bench unit, would he be okay with probably being the fourth or fifth option in our starting lineup? Or again, do you, or do you make or again do you hinder DeRozan's development and shift him to fourth or fifth option? Well, or, do, or do you take Kevin Love, who's been blossoming this entire time and it, putting up crazy numbers, and we tell him, like, yo, bro, you got to take a step back? No, no, absolutely not. I think either, I mean, either DeRozan, depending on how he is blossoming, mm-hmm. um, is going to continue to get that role, and we try to sell Beasley on that, or we take the asset play in terms of getting a guy like that cost-controlled for little to nothing and parlay him over for a better fit. Yeah, or I, see if we can get a, a first exactly out of, out of having Beasley. Something that they kind of did with Quentin Richardson. Uh, they had acquired Quentin Richardson, and then like within a month or two, traded him out again. Him out exactly. Um, um, yeah, like ultimately, I think we do this deal because it is a very like valuable deal in terms of like we're only giving up two seconds to to get a player who could. Assuming he buys in, you know, we just got like a really good six man. Or even if he doesn't buy in, here's a guy that, you know, he's only 21, 22. We could subsequently see what we could get for him. So like, yeah, I I think we would do that deal. I just like talking about the philosophical side of these things with you because no, I know I know Beasley's on your pyramid <laughs> or yeah, like on is, your on yeah. your like your five uh your phone he's on your phone isn't he, he he's on is. your like, screen he still is and, yep yeah. he still yep. is and he's somebody like you like you said I, I I'm I'm even understanding how Beasley's career has gone and trying to see where it could have went wrong I you illustrate at some point I don't know I, for, for the first time, I can't really make a good argument that it could fit with the roster as constructed. Beasley was a guy who, when he wasn't getting the ball enough, we saw him play, not even on stacked teams like L.A. 
he really struggled to find a fit. He was really good on teams that really didn't have an option offensively that he could be the main guy. And like the, the Enigma, the, yep. the season, the first season with the Timberwolves. He well, that's what I mean. Yeah, averaged even like then, 19. Exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. And then he had a moment where he regressed. Remember, he went to Phoenix. Yep. And it was a big thing between Lance Blanks and Ron Babby about making him a key part of that Suns team. And he averaged 10 points a game. And then he would go back. So, you know, you're going on the roller coaster that is Beasley, and it is just that. But at the end of the day, I really think that, the, the like you said, that value point for that player with that with that offer, you have to do. And then worst case scenario, you know, the Heat were not operating out of the position of of strength. You know, they, 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 they kind of have what they have. They need to get rid of salary. Yeah, they could have pressed a hard bargain, but no, we're, we're trying to get LeBron James and, and Chris Bosh. And because they were doing this in advance, the, the time was now to strike to get that money off their books. Yep. So Minnesota, listen, we're, we're, we're going to win a sub-25 games. We got a young, talented guy who could juice it all up. Maybe we win more with the roster we're constructing. By the end of the day, you know, we have this guy. He's good. We're going to get a first for him. He's only 21. So, again, maybe I'm looking at Phoenix. Some is your building block as you transition from a post-Steve Nash uh, uh, future, you know, a post-Steve Nash uh, landscape. I don't know. You, you try to make a play and, worst case scenario, get something back, a more significant return. But yeah. – that was a nice discussion. I'm glad. I love that we're able to do these like little nuggets because I really think it's interesting to like flex that part of the brain. Um, but going in, so the Wolves in general, 2011, they were part of the Carmelo Anthony trade. Um, nothing really a whole lot to report there. They traded Corey Brew and Costa Kufis, uh, and they got back Anthony uh, Randolph. Yep, and, and uh, Eddie, Eddie Curry, Curry in yeah. cash, and then Curry was almost immediately the buy. Yeah, so yeah. that happened. I actually liked Anthony Randolph on the Wolves. I thought he had like a Jaden. Anthony Randolph was interesting. He he was very much one of those like tantalizing prospects that everyone can kind of project. He was he was the the Mary Sue. Everyone likes to talk about like Bella and Twilight, which mm-hmm. those books suck. Never never read them. I've never read them, but I had a, a friend's girlfriend explain it to me. And I was like, what what in the? F-? But anyway, <laughs> um, like. Anthony Randolph was like one of those blank slates that like people could project onto him. What like, Oh man, with his physical skills and his size and his length, like, Oh, all the possibilities. And of course, like it never really panned out um, Mm -hmm. the way that most people felt. I feel like the wolves are doing that right now with Jane McDaniels. Possible. Yeah. Like, I like Jamie Downs. I'm not saying that he isn't, but oh my gosh, like he could be the next, you know, this guy. I mean, to a lesser extent of like he could a, be. It's possible. He could. Same but, way that, that the, yeah, same way yes. that he could have been, except mm-hmm. we know now that Randolph wasn't. Yes. But that pre-hype, you know, look at the physical mm-hmm. profile, look at the skill set that could still be explored, a little bit of outside shooting, a little bit of vertical athleticism, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I agree with you completely. Um, great guy to play with in 2K, I'll tell you that. Him, yes, Beasley, he was Williams, fun I had fun. Yeah, yeah, yes, he yeah. was. So that was cool. But we got to go to the draft now, 2011. Yep. Listen, nice class of talents. You know, you had a Kyrie Irving. You had a Brandon Knight. You had a Kemba Walker. Um, I'm not forgetting. You had a major guy in Clay Thompson. You had a major guy in Kawhi Leonard. You had all mm. these guys in there. You had the immortal Jimmer for death. Vucevic wound up being a really good player. Exactly. Jimmer, I got to bring him up again because he's so nice. Jimmy. I got to say it twice. Jimmy. Jimmy Jimmer. Butler. Here's the crazy thing. Jimmer went 10th. Jimmy Butler went 30th. <laughs> That's hilarious. But the BYU buzz on on 
Jimmer oh, yes. was something crazy. I mean, even when I watched him, I was like, "Why well, he's nice." I didn't see like anything crazy. Like we look at Curry, like that's insane. I saw you for dead. I saw a juiced up JJ Redick in terms of like yep. the types of shots he was getting, not oh, yeah. the archetype of a player, but just okay, really good. You know, spot up shooting, really good pull up shooting. But like it was the the, the it, they were reacting. It felt like to Jimmer the way that Curry we 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 react to at yes, the time. Yes, it it was. Another interesting thing tied to Jimmer, uh, two things. One, Jimmer got uh, outplayed and, and lost minutes to the 60th pick, Isaiah Thomas. Um, That's but the the interesting thing about Jimmer is it's tied to what I call strengths that aren't necessarily strengths. Similar mm-hmm. thing with like weaknesses. And in evaluating Jimmer's transition to the NBA, you have to ask yourself, like, yes, these are his strengths. Like, he is an elite shooter. He can create uh, space, has a quick release, all that sort of stuff, can shoot in all the different ways. Is an NBA team going to build their entire offense around Jimmer like it was at BYU? Because if they are not, Jimmer's draft uh like his evaluation has to reflect that too if jimmer goes from getting like you know 15 plus shots per game to jimmer's gonna get like eight to ten that changes drastically Mm -hmm. the type of player he projects to be and his likely impact on an nba team absolutely Absolutely. And I think that you're not gonna find many teams, the Kings certainly weren't one of them, that were willing to say, okay, you know what? The the floor is yours. We're gonna remake this team around you. A la, you know Boogie would never have let that happen. <laughs> no, that was not gonna be a th- exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're gonna be our Allen Iverson and we're gonna be the two thousand one six. No, it's not gonna that's yeah. not how it was, you know. So I definitely agree with you there for sure. Um I guess now we go into Derek Williams. Derek Williams, six eight, yep. two forty one. You know, uh, rose to national attention in his sophomore year, averaged 19.5 points, 8.3 rebounds, was second-team All-America, um, and Khan was enamored with him, very much like I was. Um, Khan thought that the fit could work, add more youth, add more athleticism. Why not? You know, Kevin Love a power forward, okay. Michael B a small forward, all right. And we'll add Williams there, too. Unfortunately, <laughs> what could go wrong, right? Um, Williams more comfortable playing power forward was kind of miscast at the three with his specific skill set. Wasn't that good enough a shoot to be a three. Undersized 6'8 to fully play the four. Wasn't made the most use of that athleticism of the three and was too undersized to do it at the four. Couldn't play the five at all. You know, with the skill set that he had. Maybe nowadays you you spin it into a weird kind of five role. He wasn't the best defensively at all either. So that's also an issue. Joining another front court core of players who are not the best defensively. So you have all that. And we know that Williams only go on to average 10 points and five boards in his three seasons with Minnesota. So I want to get your thoughts on Williams and then we will kind of go and look at who we will actually draft a second round. So overall pick. I also really thought he was a really interesting and, and high quality prospect heading into that draft class. Mm -hmm. Um, He shot like an insane 56.8% from three in his sophomore season. The problem is he shot a total of 93s in his college career. So yes, he, he hit them at an insane rate in in his sophomore year, super athletic, all that sort of stuff. But is that, is that more a case of like, this is legit 
he is going to be an elite level three point shooter on the NBA level, or is this like boosted by randomness and, and, and that sort of thing? And then on top of it, you, and you already kind of uh, alluded to this, um, Kevin loves your four, Beasley's your three. Um, what is William supposed to do? if he's not going to get a lot of looks at the three or the four, do you slide Beasley up to the two and then have Williams at the three, which again, defensively, that's going to be a a terror show for your team, not the opponents. Um, And then, uh, you know, Beasley at the two just unlocks even more of the, like, I don't want to say selfishness, but that, that type of like, Oh, okay. I have, I'm I have the green light. I'm I'm the two. I've I've kind of the green light to to shoot even more than I did at the three. And Williams also suffers from the college four to NBA three transition of everything we talked about before. Has the athleticism advantage? Has the the quickness advantage? Has a handle advantage against college fours? put him on the NBA, shift him to the three, and all of a sudden he's going against defenders who make uh, you need a lot tighter handle, even more quickness, a little more shiftiness to your game. And I I think if you have Kevin Love and you have Michael Beasley, and and admittedly we're, we're in a different context where ideally we have Beasley as our sixth man, or we've moved him for a a first or something. Um, Williams still remains an intriguing candidate, but we know we have love locked in at the four. And if we do have Beasley, we have Beasley soaking up minutes at the four behind love and, and soaking up some minutes at the three too. Does do the odds of Derek Williams reaching his potential heights, do they make sense for this Timberwolves team where, you know, again, even if he he comes in and we make him the starter at the three, you know, we have defensive issues. Uh, he's still probably going to be the fourth or fifth option at best on offense. Like, like does Derek Williams become – Arizona Derek Williams on the NBA level with the Minnesota Timberwolves uh, context. I think if he's re- he's somebody that really, again, of all the guys we've talked about in the David Conn era, like depending on where he is slotted draft wise and fit wise with the expectations put on him, he could have been a offensively talented small ball four. Yeah. Or offensive talent at small ball five yes. in today's NBA. Yes. Um, but even if he's on another team, maybe they find a role for him like that. I mean, he didn't come that far out before the Steph Curry switch everything small ball revolution happened in 2015. You know, so all we need to do is have him on a team where, you know, he would find that role sooner. Uh, you know, let's say. What, late in the first or whatever the case may be. And I think that you're right. Like his success swings heavily on that because you look at him as a savior or something at number two, you're going to be just horribly disappointed. Look at someone who has like a nice kind of scoring package off the bench, you know, run the wing, shoot some threes, play some defense, fill some gaps. Then you have something different. Now, maybe his defense struggles are still too much. Maybe he's not enough of a shooter to justify him playing on the perimeter. And he just doesn't have the bag inside to be that guy. It's possible that he still flames out of the tweener that just didn't have it where he needed it. 
But you're in a much better position if you do it that way. And I agree with you there. I just think, I mean, I thought he was definitely worthy of going number two back then. I remember being very yeah. invested in Derek Williams. It kind of was the consensus back then. Hindsight being 2020, though, no. Like, he definitely would not be going second overall in anyone's draft unless, you know, you're just trying to do it again. Um, but I do think that you do have a case for him, uh, you know, maybe in that 20th pick. You know? Yeah. Uh, even assuming, the 31st. Assuming he would still be available. But exactly, because yeah. that's what I mean. In that draft, he would still be picked, not second, but I don't know if he lingers until 20. Like, he was still a decent player. Um, the skill was tantalizing. Like you said, he kind of had the same kind of Wes Johnson. Wes shot more threes, but this astronomical shooting percentage for a guy who ended up being, you know, about league average to middling shooter at best. Uh, but college inflated those numbers in a way uh, because he was really on a towards streak. 50% of anything is really good um, as long as that a math test and you know just for him to do that like really solid but but yeah i guess looking at that and i'm glad we gave Dave, uh you know Derek williams some, some time there for sure yes, yeah you look at this 2011 draft class assuming number one Kawhi comes off the board easy which yes, is yeah, yeah. yeah you know it's it's there Kyrie's still yeah. nice i think Kawhi goes off easy though you have let's say kawaii has gone you have clay thompson you have Kyrie Irving, Jimmy, Jimmy Butler, mm-hmm. um, you know, even scrolling down. I mean, those are the three for me. I think after that, it's, it's a next step down for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but out of those three, how do you have your ranking ordered? Yeah, so given the context of we have Steph Curry, DeMar DeRozan, Kevin Love, uh, DeMarcus Cousins, and presumably Michael Beasley as kind of our core uh, at the moment, Kyrie doesn't make sense, even if he's on the board for us. Like Kyrie and Steph, that's not Kyrie, Steph, DeRozan, Love is not going to work defensively whatsoever. Like, no, but think of the offense. Dude, do you want to go the, um, <laughs> what was it? Uh, was it Westfall? who had the Nuggets playing like at the fastest pace, but they were all 1991, giving up, like, 100... baby. 20 points a game or something like that. I got Don um, Nelson as my coach. That's exactly the way I want to go. But <laughs> of I guess you, you would say yes to this. Um, no, no, I think, I, I think mm-hmm. it's obvious. Like, and again, who's the, who's the four, who takes a step back? Who, who goes, who shifts from third option to fourth option, who shifts from fourth to fifth, etc. Like that we already have a lot of mouths to feed. Kyrie wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. And honestly, uh, like, for the reasons we enumerated earlier, like Derek Williams doesn't really make sense for us because he's not going to be Arizona Derek Williams for mm. our team. Um, so to me, the obvious guys, and I love Clay Thompson. You know I adore Clay Thompson, and I'm sounding like Stephen A. Smith. Like he he is a close personal friend. Uh, <laughs> so, um, <laughs> The the obvious two are Kawhi and Jimmy. Even at that point in time, they were they were known as like high level defensive prospects. And our biggest hole with with our, our current core is defense. And both Jimmy and Kawhi, obviously we've known what they've grown into. That's future bias and everything. Um, we know what they're capable of. But at the moment, we need somebody who's willing to accept a fourth or fifth option on offense, too, and still bring outsized impact to our team. And the likeliest candidates are going to be Kawhi, Jimmy, and Clay. True. 
I mean, Tange and Gumbo too. No, I'm playing. Um, I mean, yes, <laughs> that goes without saying. But you can't take him. You can't no. take him second because you can't take him in the draft. No, <laughs> absolutely not. So looking at that, I agree with you completely. Um, I actually had, for what it's worth, Kyrie second because, yeah, of course, of course my – Yeah, just talent-wise. I'm like, yo, I yeah. listen, and I get it. It would never like, work, but yes, yeah. It, exactly. It's one of those – it would only work in, in games, but it would yeah. be so nice, at least offensively. But that's not the point. Going mm-hmm. to what we were talking about here on what makes sense on building a roster, it comes down to me between Clay Thompson and Jimmy Butler, and to be honest, it's not really much of a decision because up until Clay Thompson's unfortunate injuries over the last two years, Clay Thompson's more durable, Clay Thompson's a better fit, Clay Thompson came in already with the pedigree of being one of the best shooters in the draft, um, and I mean, obviously one of the best shooters in NBA history now, so there's a thing there. And Jimmy Butler, I, I mean, as much as he has improved and has this uncanny knack, for raising the level of play in the playoffs and games or need it most. Um, he's also going to miss at minimum 15, 20 games. He's only played 70 games uh, in a season twice in his NBA career. Once with the Bulls. Um, and I want to say, um, I think both are with the Bulls. Yeah. Also, both just, with the Bulls. just throwing this out there. We know Boogie's kind of personality. How how stable is our, our team if we have Boogie and Jimmy's personalities? <laughs> that is true. <laughs> like that is true. A, a, and if like knowing like Steph it probably takes precedent over both of those guys, at least at the beginning. Uh Kevin Love probably takes precedent over both of those guys, at least at the beginning. Are Jimmy Butler and Boogie, given everything we know about them, not gonna have some issues being like third options at best i think eventually they might eventually be. Um, yes, remember yeah, yeah. i mean jimmy butler coming in originally didn't even come yeah, to his so own until about you know 2014 2015 yeah, yeah. once that happened though then he did indeed start clashing with teammates and coaches and got traded but for him to come in at 2011 you know just being a defensive stopper up until his fourth season i mean it's almost like when you talked about players breaking out and developing, you know, you have a four-year window of Butler. Is it worth it for me? No, especially not promise health and his offensive game, particularly his shooting, which mm-hmm. was always still a kind of sketchy mark, didn't really come to his own till that time. So while you have someone who has potential, uh, the odds of you realizing that is not high. Whereas if I get someone like Clay Thompson, who not only is a very good shooter, a very solid defender, but also the lack of reliance on athleticism, um, yeah, I'm going to take that guy. I think he can play the two. I think he can get swing up to the three. In the system here, um, it kind of gives some more balance to this roster. A guy who doesn't need the ball like that, um, but also when he gets it, will you know connect at a high clip. Yeah, I, I think the 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 clear answer to me is Kawhi, um, with Clay oh, if he Clay if being there. like second over Jimmy, like you said. I agree. Um, I also think Kawhi and Clay, especially coming in would be okay with their roles. Like, I, I don't feel like there there would be, like, obviously they're both hard workers and they both would expect more of their careers down the line, but I don't think either of them would cause any problems. And I don't think rookie Jimmy Butler would either, but I think uh, given what we already had, Kawhi and then Clay and then Jimmy would make the most sense. Mm. I'm with it. Totally understand. That makes a lot of sense there, too. Yeah. If Kawhi was available, I assume Kawhi was off the board at number one. So, 
Well, um, I like I, I'm imagining like since this isn't a redraft, this would still be the same context at the time. I imagine Kyrie's the one who goes number one to the Cavs still. And then we get the first pick of everyone else. Um, and with that and being it, said, and yeah, in that Kawhi. context, we'd probably get ripped to shreds for taking Kawhi second. But, you know, I, I'm also a big proponent of not trading down unless you know for a fact your guy is going to be there. Um, and we couldn't 100% be certain. In hindsight, we'd know we could trade down, um, you know, it, but in hindsight, everything is clear but we'd also have the 20th pick um anybody pop in mind specifically at that 20th pick besides jimmy who we mentioned before yeah jimmy pops out um i have Derek williams but then i slotted him more through 31st i think he can fall further down than 20th more looking at it you also have the morris twins now mind you they did go a little bit higher than projected yeah they went 13, um i think it was like 12th 14, and 13th or 13th, there you go 14th 13, 14. um but i like reggie jackson as well um also brandon knight uh again we have our guard situation set up, but we don't have our backup point guard situation set up i think both those guys would work well um i have a little more confidence in reggie jackson just I mean, both guys had spotty health but Brandon Knight comes with the reputation of being a shooter. Um, Reggie Jackson, though, has helmed his own team and I thought did a pretty decent job. Brandon Knight has done the same, but I like Reggie Jackson, especially, you know, big government. Come on, it's a great nickname. Um, so I would look at Reggie Jackson or Brandon Knight. Um, but also, and this is another one that I, 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 I'm leery of leaning into the front court again. Uh-huh. With all the guys we already have here. But again, the skill set is just different enough that I might like it with some intriguing playmaking skills. That would be Chandler Parsons. Yeah. So I, I'm coming at it from the perspective of like it be essentially the same draft order for the most part, just changed where the players we pick and, and that sort of thing. So like I, I imagine the Morrises would still be off the board. Um you know, Reggie would still be on the board. Jimmy would still be on the board. Um, I think there's some interesting guy, and, and this comes back to what do we do with Beasley, right? Like, do we plan on keeping Beasley and operating as our sixth man? Um, and especially if we're taking somebody like Kawhi, Clay, or Jimmy, like that further eats into Beasley's um, like playing time and role. Um, if we don't, if we move Beasley for a future pick, might we look at somebody like a Chandler Parsons or Nikola Miritich or even like a Kenneth Fareed who can be in our big rotation, who can do some of the things at least that Love can, like particularly uh, Parsons and Miritich can can fulfill some of the shooting. Parsons also has some of that passing ability. Fareed's going to make sure that we have, you know, 48 minutes of high-level rebounding. Like, I think obviously, you know, Jimmy and Reggie make sense to have high on the board there too. Um, and even if we just drafted Kawhi, if we do move off Beasley, having Jimmy also, we have two high quality defensive prospects on the wing right now. And given how we uh, slot in DeRozan's minutes and his rotation in terms of like when he's playing alongside Steph and so forth, we can, I think we can fit minutes for Jimmy and Kawhi. Um, 
So like, it's an interesting question with that, that uh, 20th pick. And I'm not sure exactly where I lean because, you know, having a, a quality backup point guard, although I have to admit, we all know, and, and probably from the beginning, Reggie Jackson does not want to be a backup is not going to like True. not bristle at being a backup, even if it is to Steph Curry. Um, he, yeah. He wouldn't to Russ, one of the greatest. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, mean, subtle, you subtly tricked me into agreeing with that. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or, or, or do we get somebody like, uh, and I mean, we'll have the 31st pick so we could still get Parsons with that, but like, do we go, backup point guard who might bristle at being a backup point guard and is probably gonna you know have to play a lot alongside Steph um which changes uh, how many minutes we can kind of allot to like Kawhi and to Rosen in terms of like certain lineup structures and stuff um I think I'd probably go getting Jimmy with that 20th pick too and hopefully having enough minutes between DeRozan, Jimmy, and Kawhi to develop all three. That's interesting. I, I'm, I would not do Jimmy. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, but fair. I like, I like where you're coming with it and I could definitely understand that for sure. Um, and you know what? I mean, if, 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 I don't know, we talked about, I just feel personality wise, it wouldn't work. And I'm like, am I getting the best? I, I kind of agree. Now? Uh, but I feel like that's the exact same issue with Reggie. <laughs> well, okay, but only difference with that is that we can just do, if that's the case, Brandon Knight. And well, Chandler Brandon Parsons. Knight was taken with the eighth pick. There's no oh, way Brandon Knight no would way be Brandon available would still with 20. Yeah. That is true. So then if that's the case, because you're right, I forgot he was drafted. Yeah, th- then we get into the, like, do we go with a Reggie or a Jimmy, which does have some drawbacks um as noted like obviously they both have had really good careers jimmy much more so but like do we go with somebody like that or do we go with somebody like a nikola miritich a kenneth farid or a chandler parsons knowing that they're probably coming in expecting to be the backup four that's true i mean man or or are there any like uh boogie backup prospects i don't really think there are but but like you know like at at this point you know we start what what, we have mm -hmm. like four players already locked in five if we keep beasley we just get Kawhi, so that's like six kind of core pieces that need a lot of minutes need a lot of development we need a lot of that sort of stuff so at that point you know do we draft somebody who's coming in expecting to get a lot role, of usage, get... a lot like a big role and stuff like that, and who might bristle at having a smaller role, which is Reggie mm-hmm. and eventually Jimmy. I think at the time, at, in his first couple of years, I think Jimmy would be totally like okay with, you know, kind of platooning with Kawhi and Jamar um, and kind of developing the, the, the problem, the argument against drafting Kawhi and Jimmy is it's really hard to develop two players in the same role, same position uh, at the same time. 
like Kyle Lowry and Mike Conley. Both of them went on to become very, very good uh, all-star and all-NBA quality players. Yeah. Um, but neither of them did it while they played together with the Grizzlies. Mm-hmm. There, there's true. only so much developmental focus you can give. So I think the question is, at, at that 20th pick, how do we prioritize what we go with? What if we went with more marginal players who could fill a more defined role? So we look yeah. at Chandler Parsons, who we know what he can do, right? We saw what he did in yeah. Houston. We saw what he did in Dallas, right? You look at like Adrian Butler, same thing you mentioned. Look yeah. at Reggie Jackson, flourishing later on in Detroit, you know, also with the Clippers, right? Um, what if we swung it to another guard, another big, who both went kind of late in the second round? And the guard and big I'm thinking about is Etwan Moore and John Luer. Hmm. But those guys... I, I, I get where you're coming rolls. from. Like John yep. Luer was a shooter, a shooting yep. big, Bench who big. Would, again would allow for kind of 40 minutes of not not even close to a poor man's love, but fills the same role within our offense to a certain degree. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, like I'm a big proponent of like my my favorite organization has been the San Antonio Spurs. You can't quite tell I'm wearing a Manu shirt right now. Shout out to Manu uh, going Hall into of the Famer. Hall. Yep. Uh, love Monty, yeah. but uh, I think a large part of what made the Spurs such a strong team over such a long time is they always fleshed out their depth to those players didn't necessarily have the same level to them that their starters had outside of Manu, obviously, um, but those players still fit the same offensive system roles just to a lesser extent than the starters. And so they didn't have to change everything up whenever they went to a non-starter lineup. Yeah. And so like, I personally really value that. And that's why I think like Jimmy's interesting because he can fill the exact same role. Kawhi is going to fill. Um, and, and both of them, if you want to stretch them a little bit more when DeMar's off the court, uh, as long as you still have a Steph and a boogie or a love on the court as well, like those guys can get some, some more play, some more development on ball um, in, in certain moments. There's also guys like Bojan Bogdanovic was taken 31st in this draft who could also fill a similar kind of like shooting big role. Um, I don't know if it would be wise to drop down too far to take like lure and, um, who was the point guard you mentioned? Um, oh, Etwan Moore. Etwan Moore. Yeah, I, I say that because Etwan Moore, solid shooter. Yeah, Swan yeah. Playmaker, yeah. plays good defense. You know, these guys are not going to get outside the roles, but they're going to perform yep. well in the roles. And like you yes. said, the archetype of that player, he is a Clay Thompson archetype in mm-hmm. that way. Obviously, a very yeah. poor man's version of that. John Lewis, yeah. Kevin Love, they come off the bench, they fit well. Yeah, in which case, I would, if that were the route we would go. I would suggest moving the 20th pick for additional value as well as uh, I think we'd have the 31st pick and uh, maybe pick up a, a second in another second in this round in this draft plus future draft capital for the 20th pick and maybe like filler uh, a Corey Brewer Sebastian Telfair, Craig Smith, Ryan Gomes, whomever is still kind of like on our roster. Um, I think that's one approach. I'm also kind of subtly liking the idea of going with a like um, 
Chandler Parsons or Nikola Miritich at 20. I like that too. I can get with Cause, that. Because I feel like those guys, particularly Miritich, because he was already a professional player mm-hmm. uh, overseas, like I feel like they would come in and they would know like, okay, my role is to like, I might play um, not a ton of minutes, but I know what my role is going to be and I'm going to fill it and I'm going to fill it well. Um, It's hard to not take Jimmy (laughs) or Reggie Jackson knowing what their careers have become, but I feel like, that might be a more advantageous route with that 20th pick, considering we just locked Kawhi into that, that starting lineup that we've developed. Um, I, I think that might be a solid approach. And then we'd still have the 31st pick with which we can, you know, address like getting a um, Etchwan Moore or, um, you know, we could go Chandler Parsons and then roll the dice on Reggie, not bristling at being a backup point guard. Like, I think you have to kind of do one of those two kind of approaches because um, the the other thing I think often falls prey to uh, teams fall prey to, uh, and, and it's one of the issues with the rebuilding strategy that Sam Presti and Danny Ainge are employing is, you can definitely have too much talent. You definitely can have too much talent because you still have to develop that talent. And it's kind of like, and I was just having this discussion with my, my pregnant wife. Um, we were, we were talking about how messed up that uh, 16 and counting that family that had like 16 children. I think they're up to like 19 or something now mm-hmm. and, and how at a certain point it's detrimental to the kids or the players you're trying to develop right now because you only have so much developmental resources you only have so much touches minutes like uh usage and roles within different lineups that you can't really develop you know eight players to nba heights at the same time it's just not really feasible yeah and so I get the the appeal of like, let's just collect as much talent as possible, throw them all at the board, see which darts stick, and then like we'll deal with the rest. But I, I don't think that's the best team building strategy when you already have some talent that you've identified and you're already working on developing, which in our case would be true. So I, I think with that 20th pick, we need to figure out, are, are we going with um, – you know, somebody who maybe has more talent, a higher ceiling, or are we going to go with somebody who's going to make sure that we have that consistency um, behind somebody like a Kevin Love or behind a Steph or a DeMar? That's a tough one. That's a tough one. Where are you leaning now? Um, personally, I'm, I'm leaning trading the 20th pick for future capital. Like, continuing to spin it down the line um, and, and with that 31st pick taking Parsons. You know what? It's such a, this was honestly, I think we spent the most time on this and <laughs> and with, it was the 20th pick. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Which is just classic us. I think yes. but also I feel like with good reason because it's a delicate balance when you do roster construction and I, you know, I'm the king of on my base level, just throwing stuff together, but I'm aware 
of okay, a team has to work together. It has to find a certain way to mesh. And especially, you know, with your experience here and what you brought up, even with the Mike Conley, um, Kyle Lowry example, like it's a deft process to do. And so it does take a lot of analysis, a lot of figuring out, you know, what pieces fit where. I love that we did this. So I'm going to do that with you too. That 20th pick, I'm sure it'll get us something, you know, in return. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a nice place right with talent, you yeah. know, for another team to make uh, what could potentially for them be an easier decision, um, mm-hmm. being that they won't have the same roster holes or needs or lack thereof that we have. But I, I totally like trading that 20th pick and late in that with that next, that 30th one, um, the 31st, I think it was, right? Yeah. Yeah. 31st. We will pick up Chandler Parsons. Yep. So I'm going to add that as so well. So Kawhi and Parsons for the 2011 draft. Okay. Good, good, good. Okay, now we go to our last draft of the David Kahn era. And honestly, these two shouldn't take too long. They're both late. Uh, one late first rounder and one late second. But with the late first rounder, we have the 18th pick. Um, now, this would be – we, we said we are going to trade Al Jefferson, so let's just propose that we did the Al Jefferson deal. Mm-hmm. We got this pick back. Yeah, yeah. Like real life, that's what happened. Um, who do you like late in this draft? Now, the 2012 draft, just while, you know, um, we're kind of recapping here, this is the draft that had AD, you know, go number one, Dame Lillard, um, Draymond Green, Bradley Beal. Chris Middleton, you know, all these good guys, uh, and we are not in this mix. So all yeah. the way down the list, I just want to give an idea of the draft. Well, I mean, Draymond, Draymond and Chris Middleton both were taken with the 35th and 39th pick. So there were uh, – Oh, so we could swing on those. And, like, J- Jay Crowder was 34th. Uh, Will Barton was 40th. Um, like, the, the, there there were some solid players who were late. who were taken a little late. Um, the question is, you know, we have – so, again, just outlaying our thought process. We already have Steph Curry, DeMar DeRozan, Kawhi Leonard, Kevin Love, DeMarcus Cousins, uh, and Chandler Parsons. And we also have, like, Jeremy Lin as a backup point guard uh, mm-hmm. from, from a previous draft. So – we, we have a lot of young talent already, and, and we have a lot of mouths to feed offensively. Um, and so – and in theory, we might even have multiple picks in this draft, but who knows because we can't really speculate exactly what we would have gotten for trading some of those – like the 20th pick uh, in the last draft. Um, so the question kind of becomes what what – further pushes our team up what elevates our team more you know what what uh raises the tide and lifts all of our boats the most um and we got the we got the rebounding on lock with boogie and, and uh k love we got plenty of shooting um we got shot creation and, and staff Demar. um we know that Kawhi eventually develops that um, we know that, that love and boogie can also create for themselves and, and play make for others. We, we've got a lot of stuff. We're still a little light on defense. Kawhi yeah. is arguably the only particularly good defender we have. Like boogie had his moments. Steph is a better defender than people often give him credit for, but really Kawhi is the only strong defender that we have. So that's probably where I would try to focus on. 
That said, the obvious pick is Draymond, but we already have Kevin Love, Boogie, and Chandler Parsons. So unless we're flipping those guys for anything, it's kind of hard to justify taking Draymond. I mean, I wouldn't mind flipping Kalev. I know you (laughs) (laughs) But no, no. But if we're going to keep it the team concept and do something differently, remember Kalev was even able able to be traded primarily off of the sins of David Kahn in not negotiating that contract. So we're not doing that. Yeah, and and we're talking, uh, this was still Minnesota Kevin Love. Yeah. Not Cleveland Kevin Love. We're talking consistent, high-numbered double-doubles, three-point shooting and passing. Like, no one else in the league at the time brought what he brought to the table. No, and and that's almost but why I it's tantalizing. Yeah. yeah, that's why it's almost tantalizing to trade him because, like, Kevin Love at that time, before he became Cleveland, Kevin Love yielded you the number one pick. Now, granted, it ended up being Andrew Wiggins, who we didn't know was going to be a little bit different. But bottom line, if we're talking first overall pick value for a guy like that on a win-now team, and yeah, it took a certain level of, of, of circumstances to make that happen. That's still a very viable player. You put Kevin Love in play. I mean, I've done this before in old school stuff, new stuff. Like, that guy is yielding a return of some top-tier talent in a major way if you believe in taking a next step, if you want to prioritize a different position, whatever the case may be, yep. out of anyone else you have right there. Because DeMarcus Cousins, still young at that point, not getting something like that. Um, Chandler Parsons, you get late in the second. The value's great, but you're not getting that. So yeah, well, if he's also not to. having the same type of rookie of, year of he rookie. had with Houston because he's playing behind Kevin Love. So and like, that is yeah, true. Yeah, so you're right. Yeah. He's not going to even give it the opportunity to even come out breakthrough in that way. Um, it, it, well, potentially in that way. He ended up having a breakthrough, but it was different. Yeah, yeah. But I, again, with that being said, I'm torn because on the one hand, I would do that, but that would be another hypothetical of what picks would yeah, trade yeah, to be yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whole another rabbit hole. So we keep Kevin Love. My guy, actually, I would throw out there would be a Kent Bazemore. I would almost Interesting. Okay. punt on this pick. And when I say punt on, I'm not finding the perfect value at 18 for a, a draft as deep as this would be. But fit-wise, I mean, you get Chris Middleton, how long is he going to be Chris Middleton? Like, Chris Middleton is a second-tier well, guy be who... Playing, he'd be playing behind DeMar DeRozan and Kawhi too so like again well, how long does it take for Middleton to get the opportunity to, to even develop to what to what we know yeah and that's if of course DeMar is at this point playing you know playing well whatever the kids maybe yeah, a yeah. couple years in so you're right or even Austin Rivers I want guys again I'm trying to do that well I mean Austin of, went 10th so I oh I think. keep forgetting that Austin go in so early darn it yeah 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 New Orleans didn't he yes 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 uh, which yeah, yeah, originally yeah. was the a Minnesota pick by the way but oh, funny. Um, yeah. the so oh, Michael he, Green, I like. He, here's where I'm coming from. Jay Crowder. Um, again, Kawhi's the only defensive player we have at this point, really. Um, Jay's another guy, much like Chandler Parsons, who's going to come in, accept the role. Uh, you know, backup Kawhi you know, allows us to potentially have Kawhi shift up to some backup two minutes every now and then. Like I, I, there's not a whole lot. And and it's weird because again, Draymond Green and Chris Middleton are available, but again, would Draymond Green and Chris Middleton become the Draymond Greens and Chris Middleton's that we know them to be now, if they're, you know, playing, behind uh other players 
Um, and, and like even with Draymond, it took a David Lee injury to to uh, like let him get his chance to shine. So like it, it it's tough in in these circumstances. It's easy in hindsight bias to just collect all the talent and like, bam, we got Draymond too. Draymond backs up Boogie. Like you know it's hard for me to realistically think that like a team at that time, especially given the context that we're saying we're in would necessarily view Draymond as a center, as the backup to boogie. Although in theory, given Draymond's defensive, I'm talking myself into Draymond, given Uh, Draymond's (laughs) defensive capabilities, you could draft him even if you think he's a power forward because then he can platoon with love when Boogie's sitting and you still have some degree of size and rebounding while still having the defensive element uh, of Draymond. So, and, and that wouldn't necessarily kill Chandler Parsons as well because Parsons can still get some minutes at the three minutes at the four and Draymond basically gets the backup center minutes, even though he's playing alongside love or if we're playing a particularly bad bench team like him and Parsons. You make an excellent point. I, I, I feel like I was talked into a player, talked out of a player. <laughs> but... I did that to myself, too. Ooh, that's tough. I mean, honestly, at this point, I feel like it's one of those decisions where you just pick best player available and then, like, look at your roster and make moves related to that. I think Draymond Green is the best player available. You're able to to a defense. You bring him in. You look at your front court. BC got to go. BC got to go. Kevin, like, yeah, yeah. like at that point, if you bring Draymond Green, Green in, of course, hindsight being a big part of this because oh, yeah, no one yeah, knew Draymond was going to be Draymond here. Although, I do think it gets overblown Draymond's draft evaluation at the time. A lot of it was primarily due to his size. A lot well, of it I mean, was like, huge. oh, he can't, he can't defend bigs. Like he's he's yeah. only six eight. Like, but knowing that he can changes everything. Exactly. Like the thing is, at Michigan State in college, he did do basically what we've seen him do with the Warriors, just not dialed up to eleven. Like he did a lot of what he already did in in college. It's just people looked at him like, okay, well, yeah, but it's that power. It's the college power forward. NBA three so people are like, but is Beasley. Draymond a small forward? Mm-hmm. And no, Draymond's not a small forward. He's actually a center. Um, <laughs> yeah. So like, I, I think the evaluation of Draymond, like Draymond never should have fallen as far as he did anyway, because Draymond always projected to be a quality defender. Uh, maybe not like, obviously I, I don't think anybody would expect him to become a, a like Depoy and the greatest gen- defender of his generation type player. No, first ball but, Hall of Famer. But there, there was a lot that Draymond showed at Michigan State that would fit exactly what our team could use off the bench. Fair enough. I, I say we take him. Okay. I say we take him. I like that we had the discussion. Those, but... blows out, those blowouts with him and Boogie in the locker room will be very entertaining. But you know I mean, they've had they, they shared a year together. That's true. Yeah, exactly. So, so there's, there's precedent for it. It would be yeah, entertaining, yeah. but we've seen it happen, and, you know, it wasn't horrible. So, yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that. Okay, well, with that being said, we have uh, one more pick to make a 58th. decision on. Yeah. That would be the 58th, uh, the, the, the 40th. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're right, because they mm. then traded that. Hmm. Yeah, at that point, Chris Middleton's off the board. Uh, the actual 40th pick was Will Barton. Um, like you mentioned, uh, th- there's not a ton here. Like, I guess you could take a flyer on um, somebody like a Mike James, who we know went on to have <laughs> some some good games every now and then, or Interesting like moments, yes, like uh, or a Kent Bazemore. That could be like that could be a good Kent Bazemore spot. I think. You know what? I, I say we go with that. I'm looking at where I was trying to see where Jermichael Green was drafted. Uh, Jermichael, along with Kent Bazemore, was undrafted. Okay, but, so but, then, like, but then again, we, we have, just got Draymond. If we and, already have Draymond, Kevin Love, yeah, we don't need, and Parsons. We don't need, yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't need Jermichael at all. Yep, yeah. Kent Bazemore it is. Wow. You know what's funny? This just shows you how interesting it is when you're not just not doing a, a straight-up redraft. Yeah. When you're drafting on me this type of team exercise where, okay, the moves they make in 2009 – that was easy. They have ripple effects. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Now, yeah. Exactly. Now, how do we make the effect of 2012, 2013? Mm-hmm. So now we have, and I have this written down here, just to kind of close out what we have done over these four years in real time here. Um, we have drafted Steph Curry, DeMar DeRozan, DeMarcus Cousins. So Steph Curry and DeMar DeRozan, 2009. 2009. DeMarcus Cousins, Jeremy Lin, 2010. Mm-hmm. Kawhi Leonard, Chandler Parsons, 2011. Mm-hmm. Draymond Green, Kent Bazemore, 2012. Yep. These are the selections of the new and improved Minnesota Timberwolves who now have a rotation of Curry, DeRozan, Cousins with Lynn, Kawhi, Parsons, Green, and Bazemore in the mix. The front court still has to be figured out because you have Kevin Love as well as Michael Beasley. So one of those guys. Well, I, I feel like out. Beasley, we'd probably flip. Once we Don't got say Kawhi. that to me, dude. No, we kidding. have Kawhi. <laughs> like again, we're not really flipping. Uh, I'm also, with if you. we're, we're not really flipping Minnesota Kevin Love. Um, no, we're because not. also we also wouldn't have pissed off Kevin Love as much as Khan would have. So I don't think he would have been as open in the to first place. In the first place, which um, means he, yeah. So, so we're basically looking at a rotation of. Uh, starters: Steph Curry, Demar Derozan, Kawhi Leonard. Kevin Love, DeMarcus Cousins, with a bench of Jeremy Lin. Uh, I don't know if we ever really plugged behind DeRozan, but like Jeremy Lin, Kent Bazemore on the wing, uh, Chandler Parsons, and Draymond Green. And that doesn't factor in uh, whatever we could get in trades for the guys that we had on our team when we started out with, such as Corey Brewer, Sebastian Telfair, Ryan Gomes, Craig Smith, etc. Yeah, it went and this whatever was... we could net for Beasley. That Again, is true. Sorry, I mean it <laughs> that, hurts. that would that would be. You know what's funny is like I'm picturing this as if we we actually were co GMs. Breaking it to Beasley would be easier than like having to console Corbin after we make the decision. <laughs> like, yes. like I feel like Beasley would be like. Yeah, sure, whatever, man. And and then like I'd have to take Corbin out for drinks after, and we'd have yes. like, a long night of like what could have been. <laughs> no, he was gonna 
be our next star. Yeah. No, yeah. I you, you're totally right. I would lose it myself. But no, this was fun, Josh. This was a massive episode, a show as our, our shows tend to be. Um, but I love the in-depth breakdown of, of talking about an executive who, you know, it was in a unique situation, made some interesting decisions, um, is known and probably blamed rightfully so for some of the bad ones, but also putting on the GM hat and being in his shoes, you could see the complexities of being in such a scenario, even in this very rough simulation of a tenure of an executive um, and how that goes. So this is really interesting. Um, I can't wait to do this again with you. We're going to have to figure out probably after this who our next uh, target. I have an idea. All right, I want to hear it from you, man. But um, before we go and let you go, can you share, folks, where they can find you, your work, um, yeah. and more of this? Yeah, so uh, you can find me at uh, uh, on Twitter at two red j earl. Um, that's U R L for Earl. Um, also, uh, I am a basketball career development coach. I help people who are trying to build their dream career in basketball as a coach, a scout, uh, front office personnel, analytics person, content creators. I work with all of them. Um, so if you're one of those people who's feeling a little frustrated at your current state uh, of your career in basketball, look up yourhoopscareer.com, drop me a line, and uh, we can talk and, and see if uh, there's a way I can help you out. Gotta love it. I gotta love it. Tell, take it from me firsthand. Josh knows what he's talking about. We'll put you in the best position to succeed and open your eyes to ideas that you never thought of in terms of how to break in this really confusing, complicated business. But it's still a journey. And such as it is, so is our show here. Thank you again for joining us. Definitely make sure to follow Josh on Twitter. Definitely make sure to follow me on Twitter as well at CorbinNBA. Appreciate y'all for staying with it. If you made it to the end, we uh, really do appreciate you. But until next time, for Josh, for myself, I am. we are frosty. Y'all stay frosty, and I will talk to y'all real, real soon.